Welcome back to The Collie Problem. I paused there because I was like, is that the name of the show? Yeah, that is the name of the show. Uh, As you can see, I'm in a very certain headspace, which is um, both the the, uh, sleepiness of having a newborn, but also in this wonderful space where I'm learning the joys of recording a five-hour podcast versus the hell of editing a five-hour podcast. And would you believe, yes, this show is edited, really? See, what we do, do is re- record a 10-hour podcast and only keep the gold. <laughs> this is this is a tight five hours and not one minute over. We simply don't have the space. We we're going to get into a whole bunch of other stuff, but we only had five hours to fill. Um... <laughs> Uh, I should say on that point, I was pretty clear coming into last episode that it is not just unnecessary, but medically ill-advised to listen to all five hours at once. And yet, a good number of you seem to have done that. I even got, <laughs> I got messages from people who had taken their partners on long drives. Multiple people taking their partners who do not know or care for me at all on a long drive and playing them five hours of this shit. <laughs> if you are still in a relationship at the other end of that drive, Fucking marry them. They've done their duty. Every minute in this podcast counts as about 10 days of an actual relationship. And after five hours of this show, they deserve a ring on their finger. Again, coming into this episode, you are not expected to listen to this whole thing at once. You are not. It's okay. (laughs) You're allowed to pause it and go about other things. If you want to listen to it all at once... That is between you and your doctor. All I'm saying is it is not a prerequisite. A lot of people are thrown off by the sheer amount of time. It's okay. It's all right. It's, you don't have to read a whole book at once either. You're allowed to stop and do other things. But thank you for listening at all. I actually had a long discussion and a couple of you chipped in uninvited to that discussion about whether this podcast should have chapters. And if I have encoded it right, and more importantly, if I've remembered to encode it, uh, 
this episode should have chapters, which means you are able to skip to the next interview and conversation and such. You don't have to wade all the way through. You can just find the parts you like. Um, the reason I took some time on this is part of me was like, is that selling out? <laughs> is it selling out to make this show listenable? <laughs> I've already said is I've no desire to make it marketable. I have absolutely no desire, and I feel I've succeeded in that goal. <laughs> so, is it selling out to make it possible to listen to this show with ease? <laughs> and I've been divided on that, but we're going to try it this way for this one. And do you know what? I am open to selling out. If you've got something going, but I'm not. I'm not going to be selling out like fucking usual podcast ads. I'm not here to give you four minutes on. Here's how you subscribe to a toothbrush or, <laughs> you know, the thing about me, the thing about me is I love getting my underwear through the mail. No, that is not, well, if I'm selling out, I want to be, I don't know, a, a, a grill, <laughs> the specific kind of grill. <laughs> I want a product that no one needs anyway. I like... I will be the number one shiller for shoehorns or, or I don't know. I, I will take parachute sales or anything. I just don't want anything that any other podcast ad is doing. So if we're selling out, we're going to find the best worst product we can and I will shill it whether or not they give me money. Honestly, I don't, I'm not here to make money from this. Obviously, obviously this is purely a time sink, but you know, if you're out there and let's say you are listening to this, you're you're trapped in a car with your partner and they have put on this five-hour podcast promising you it gets better after the intro, which, you know, we'll see. <laughs> if they've put this on and you happen to run a store that sells, I'm going to say scarecrows. Did people sell scarecrows? <laughs> Quick, Collie, improvising genius. Think of a product. Well, probably scarecrows. Everyone needs a scarecrow. All right, look, if you run a scarecrow business, if you are scarecrows or us, get in contact with me. And next next episode, I will give you a thrilling endorsement of your scarecrows. In fact, maybe maybe that's the thing. I'm not like this is unmarkable, but if you are a listener and you run a business that is as pointless as this podcast. That is that is the note I'm putting on this. If if you're selling something practical or you're doing good in the world, I don't want to fucking hear from you. But if you are selling something that you know sucks, I want to endorse it. <laughs> That's a great selling point as well. Hi, James. Um, I heard your call out uh, for a product that sucks. And I was just thinking about my life's work. And I was wondering if you could belittle it for me. <laughs> I was actually thinking about this show um, and how to put together this episode. This is what I like to do. I like to put out about five episodes of a show and then th five hours of a show and then think about how the show is working. <laughs> which we get to later in the show, that that might not be as much of a joke as we'd hope. But I did have a thought about this, uh, which is good because you don't want to get five minutes into a five-hour show and I'm saying, I have no thoughts about this episode. We're just going to wing it. But 
what we're doing a bit more this episode is going in with a specific problem. I was like, the show's called The Collie Problem, Ed, so I should not just rest on my laurels of that terrific pun and actually try and incorporate it into the show. Uh, but a simple question, and that will um, trigger the rest of our conversation. We're also going to have a few questions that come back across the show. We have a really, really good show. And I say that with surprise, because I was kind of like, fuck me, how do I fill a second one of these? But it turns out we had too much good stuff. As I said, 10-hour show that we've cut back, so you're getting the solid gold. Um, but I'm very excited about our first conversation, and it's a great chat, actually. I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, we go on to talk about uh, some a review piece that fascinated me and I thought was incredible. I don't want to ruin anything from it, but we'll get to this. But we start with the simple problem, the simple question. The question here is, how do we feel? How are you? And I've brought in someone who I believe is more in touch with their own emotions, but also just the general emotion of our time, who seems to be the person more than anything whose art has captured modern, young, millennial, professional feeling. She's Sam Leydendor. Sam Leydendor, thank you for joining me, and uh, it feels appropriate to start here. How do you feel? How do I feel? (sighs) (laughs) I feel like it almost needs, like, a one-minute sigh to lead in. (laughs) Um, I feel overwhelmed, I think, is the kind of umbrella of how I'm feeling and how Mm -hmm. I have been feeling for, well... Yeah, the last 18 months specifically, but... Has most... anything happened in the last 18 months? <laughs> I mean, and, and that's the thing, like, I've been overwhelmed since I was born. So, like, it's just been <laughs> levelling up different levels of overwhelm. And, you know, COVID certainly broke that glass ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm really anxious, uh, I think relieved to be almost at... December, even though that doesn't really, well, we are in December, but almost at the holidays, um, feels like a big year to have gotten through, even though I'm kind of conscious that I felt the same way last year. (laughs) (laughs) And then this year, um, truly just came in. Um, yeah, I think anxious, relieved and overwhelmed. I think it's telling that, um, Every time you ask anyone how they feel, it starts with a sigh. It starts with a proper, like, let's contemplate this because it's a lot. And you, it would be strange if anyone said, fine, great. Like, right? <laughs> but it's a wonderful time. It's also like, is this a pleasantry? Because, like, when the person at the cafe says, how are you? I'm not going to mm. open up and be genuine because I'll hold people up. <laughs> <laughs> So there's like this surface level, I'm fine in the sense that I've got my health and a roof on top of my head and, you know, I've got some work and things are fine. But then beneath the surface, it's very like choppy waters. (laughs) Well, the thing that um, first attracted me to 
your work is because there is this like running current of kindness through it and this like kind of it feels like you're or being wrapped in a blanket like I'm, I'm all of my all of my metaphors currently are newborn based because <laughs> I'm, I'm dealing with you but it feels like you're being kindly swaddled <laughs> a lot of, a lot of it is saying like that like uh that like it's be gentle with yourself be gentle with each other's like there is this really lovely theme to it is that like when you feel the inner turmoil yourself how mm-hmm. easy or difficult is it to project kindness onto others super challenging i'm not gonna like i wish i was like i wish it were easier to be kind to everyone all the time <laughs> and i'm certainly not kind to everyone all the time um i try my best to be but um i i've got complex post-traumatic stress disorder so there's a lot of um tendencies, certain dynamics and certain situations, I have kind of huge reactions to things that feel really small. And, you know, in the past that has been like emotional or it's presented as like anger or a panic. Um, So trying to, seeing a therapist every week has certainly helped, but trying to kind of like hold all of that and um, not project negative stuff onto other people is my goal because there's certainly a lot of like negative emotions in me um but i figure if we're talking you know if we're going through a hard time the whole hurt people hurt people thing i experienced a lot in high school and i um Mm -hmm. trying to break that cycle by like turning pain into beauty when possible and if that's not possible at least maybe a giggle yeah, I, th- I think that's quite a lovely way of thinking about it. No, I, I feel the same because there's there's almost this, like, particularly post-high school, I had to take a hard turn from being, like, I started going into comedy particularly wanting to be Ricky Gervais, you know, wanting to be, like, edgy and, you know, mm-hmm. shocking people was as good as making them laugh. And it was a lack of confidence thing. It was that I was totally. not comfortable believing I could make you laugh. But I can make you go, ooh, and that will count the same for me. Yeah. And you know, hopefully you grow out of that thing. But I think that is that is something that takes an active effort that you're like, it's it's much easier to not be good. <laughs> it absolutely is. And I think like when I came out in high school when I was like 15, 16, you know, I'd been bullied a lot through primary school and early high school. And when I came out as gay people, there suddenly seemed like there was a social in for me. Like a lot of girls wanted to have gay friends and like there was this kind of like, you know, it was a lot of it was tough, but a lot of it was like I stepped out of one box, said here I am, and then stepped into another box, which was like mean gay friend, which seems <laughs> to be like a real trope people want in high school or expect. Like I felt like it was expected of me to be like scathing and funny in a mean way, mm-hmm. um, and I think there were definitely a few dark years there where I uh, I rose to that challenge, <laughs> um, and then you realise it's just not that fun. To make people yeah. feel bad. <laughs> I remember having getting it explained to me by a dear friend of mine who was uh I was pitching her the idea for my a stand up show I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And she was like, Okay, I want you to look at this from a perspective of an audience member. They've gotten a babysitter, they've gone out for the night, this is their one night out, and what you're planning to do is make them feel awful about the world. Wouldn't it be nice to see a show that is nice? Exactly. I mean, it's true. And I think that's why I 
when it comes to like making art or writing or just like making work about your experiences and your feelings, I think it would be easy to, there's definitely a pull towards the tortured artist kind of route, which is I've got so much pain, I need to externalize it in ways that make you feel the pain too. And I guess I try to subvert that a bit by being off-puttingly earnest and, you know, genuine with how with acknowledging how hard life is. Because <laughs> I think if something normally my test is if I'm a little bit embarrassed to share it, then it's a good thing to share. Oh, because, I love that. Because like I figure if I'm embarrassed to share it then I probably haven't seen somebody else share it, which means, and, you know, assuming that my experience of human life is, you know, not incredibly dissimilar to other people's, you know, somebody else will find it relieving to see me share it. So I try and share as much embarrassing stuff as possible um, around feelings and mental illness and, um, you know, just trying to put one foot in front of the other. This is thrilling to me because I'm embarrassed by everything I do, which makes me now feel very unique. <laughs> <laughs> I find, honestly, everything I do is embarrassing to me. I Every time I've ever done public speaking, I've had to take a Valium beforehand and I've never listened to it back because I'm just so mortified that I <laughs> spoke in front of somebody else and that it was recorded. Um, and... Yeah, but I think, you know, being embarrassed is like a sign of growth, right? Because you're like, (laughs) you're like engaging in that. Yeah. I also love, um, like, your your emotionality is so joyful, even when it's in areas you wouldn't expect. Like, one of my favorite collections of work viewers is your, like, rugby league work, let's say, that, like, is is beautiful. Like, it's, it's almost like taking the subtext of, like, I know... A lot of the feeling around, as it's a big sport fan, it's mm-hmm. like the time the Australian male is allowed to feel emotional. Yeah. And I feel you do a beautiful job of actually embracing that. You know, a lot of the way when you see this depicted in art, mm-hmm. it's often like snidey. It's often like uh, uh, um, looking down on the event. You seem to celebrate it, like which I really love. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's interesting because, like, I'm very into looking at masculinity in my work, which is an interesting line to walk because I feel like so many men feel defensive as soon as they become aware that this work is interrogating masculinity. Like, a wall goes up straight away. Um, And especially sport. Like, I could go out there and sledge sport in general because of you know my experience playing sport, which was quite ne- quite negative, <laughs> but I also think you know there are these glimmering little bits and bobs in sport, like the fact that you know fathers and sons connect and get emotional together over something, the fact that people have community and you know more and more players are coming out and talking about mental health publicly, and I, I just think when you have something that's so popular in Australian culture that is so hyper-masculine, the potential of it to shift what 
masculine is, is huge. Um, and I think by celebrating it and then I kind of, you know, I Trojan horse my way into, into men. <laughs> Metaphor, wait. <laughs> With my art. <laughs> <laughs> but I also feel like you you are going like you you're right you're going right at the teeth of one of the few like proper sacred cows of Australian society like I feel yeah. like it, it's easier to get away with sledging the Anzacs than the Australian cricket team and I feel like again what you do and why this is so effective is you're celebrating the joy you find in it like it's yeah. It's hard to like, even if you're a rugby league fan, and if you want to be defensive about your masculinity or in any of these things, what are you going to say? It's not emotional. Of course, it's emotional. That's why we care about it, and that's why I think it's been the body of work I did on NRL, crying in the leagues club, which you know I thought it was just the best title for a show ever. It was so niche, though. (laughs) Um, It was really interesting because, like, there wasn't much negative feedback at all and I was expecting a bit of backlash, but I think because I first and foremost respect that sport is a valid thing and a valid experience and that there's so much emotion tied up in it, it gave people permission to then, you know, push out the edges of what that can encompass and to look at, um, you know, why is it that men feel like they've got permission to cry on a sport field but not, you know, in public or not not at home? Why why are we allowed to hug? Why do men feel more comfortable hugging after someone's kicked a goal than they do after someone's given them good news? Like why, you know, mm. all these, it's interesting. It's almost like a gateway to, it could be a gateway to healthy masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I also want to talk about, particularly, I uh, like like any young professional millennial. I love your tiles, and um, and they 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 are truly a must have item. And and it's really like how I first like it's seeing these in every one of my friends' places is how I first came across <laughs> your work. And but like what I love about them is that universality that you have yeah. captured something about particularly young millennial emotions and and the young millennial view of the world. Can I say, like, can I ask how you tap into that and what do you feel like in general we are feeling? I think, I think there's this kind of endless appetite for text-based works that try and put into words you know, a greater sense of, you know, common emotion and common feeling of an experience. And I think there's this gap between the stuff you kind of see on Facebook, which is like cursive writing over sunsets. Mm-hmm. And then there's kind of really aggressive, ironic, pessimistic stuff as well. And I kind of wanted to bridge that gap where it's like, okay, we're, we're allowed to be a little bit earnest, but everything is really hard, but also we need to let ourselves have some levity. Like if we're not, if we're not going to let ourselves smile or um, laugh at the the madness of everything right now, it's just going to take way more of a toll on our mental health than it, than it would otherwise. So I think 
I try and take like the 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 kind of art you might find in your auntie's Airbnb in Byron Bay, <laughs> and then add a bit of like existential dread with a twist <laughs> of humor. And I think that kind of sums up what a lot of like I, certainly my friends and you know my family are feeling, which is you know <laughs> live, laugh, cry, live, live, laugh, scream into a pillow. Like it, it's it's truly like everyone is desperate for hope. So I think wherever there's like a glimmer of hope, people are grasping at it. Like it's the last bottle of water in the supermarket. And I like to contribute to the hope, but in a, um, in a way that also nods to the despair that is very real. Like I think, I think people haven't had time to stop and take count of their emotions we've all everyone's been treading water so there's a real sense of like getting to the finish line and the finish line just keeps moving (laughs) absolutely and i feel you you also hit something really well that is positive but not an idiot about it it's like the, the things that are just outrageously everything sunshine and rainbows doesn't ring true because not everything's sunshine and rainbows, but yeah. your like your touch of darkness to it, your acknowledgement of the void is enough to really make it oh, you actually get it and that you can see light at the end of the tunnel, be it a train or light. Like and it, it feels like you're here with us, let's say. Yeah, look, it's it's you can't read the the climate change reports and like watch the news and have a real like there's a real tension between wanting to be informed and wanting to be like happy. <laughs> like how does one be responsible with the media they consume, have the knowledge they need to like responsibly navigate this time, but also not be filled with despair. So it's kind of the tension between those two things is what I'm, is something I find really interesting. I think, um, I certainly haven't worked it out, but I am. I try to take things that are dark and then just get give them a twist of humor, so people can tilt their heads and sigh and be like, "Ugh, that feels about right." So I wanted to know as well, how does the success and the production and just the sheer work of doing this affect you? Because <laughs> I think I think about a lot is I see a lot of those rest you beautiful busy idiot, idiot child. <laughs> Poor Sam has to make all of these. Yeah, and are look, you resting? Next next year, I'm going to rebrand my smile tiles as trauma tiles. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's this weird thing. Like, I always thought that, because, like, I had trouble selling my art until, like, a year ago. It's been, like, a really slow kind of kind of thing. And I thought, you know, you have different ideas of success and whatnot. But I'm... I'm not sure how much of a profit I turn on them <laughs> because they, they are quite like late. Like, you know, I roll, I roll them out in my kitchen. Um, I cut them, I engrave them, I fire them twice, underglaze them, glaze them. And then I send them out and they might break in the post. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's definitely like there's a bit of a production line in the house and the word rest is now quite triggering for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because look you carve out the word rest into clay 150 times in a month and suddenly um suddenly it's mocking you (laughs) 
Um, but it's so rewarding to have, like, I think what somebody's space is says a lot about who they are and it means a lot to be invited into people's homes with my art and to know that people have little conversations around them um, means a lot. And I think I think a lot of it comes from the kind of visual material I was given through like a decade of uh, different group, like group therapy courses and like, like at one point in primary school, I think I was studied because they were just like, why are you so sad? You're so young. <laughs> Um, and like, so going through therapy so deeply when I was like 10 to 15, um, you get given a lot of pamphlets and you get given a lot of booklets with different diagrams and different, um, drawings and different like quotes and they're all designed to make you feel good, but they all feel quite patronizing and quite clinical. And I think to be able to take the essence of that and um, make it palatable, fun, sad, non-avoidant, like is kind of what I want to do. So like my goal is to see it in like a psychologist's office. (laughs) You mentioned that um, it was basically a year ago that this really started picking up for you. Mm-hmm. Was there a moment for you where you uh, could feel things shift? And how did that feel? Yeah, it's weird because, like, the pandemic has truly been the worst of times and the best of times for me. I think having... I started out studying filmmaking and then I became a journalist accidentally. And then my boss got arrested for tax fraud and then... I pivoted to art and I <laughs> so I've I've kind of always moved in different kind of done different things at the same time. So I'm quite used to pivoting and quite used to um juggling different jobs and so when the whole world had to pivot, I was kind of already I felt prepared to do that. Um and there was something I think almost comforting in having people experience anxiety and depression in the same way I felt like I have for years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I was kind of already there. So it was more of like a welcome. Um, (laughs) And I had, I had work ready to go for it because, you know, I've been quite, I've been making emotional work for a while (laughs) and suddenly everyone was feeling very emotional. So I think there was definitely a bit of a, um, increased interest in my work, which was really nice. Um, But at the same time, it's just, it's that kind of thing where you think one thing will make you feel successful and then you get there and you completely forget about that and suddenly it's something else. Um, So like, I I like to say I've been emerging for 10 years (laughs) and I'm still emerging. I'm still not, I haven't had my hair flick moment at the top. There was a moment where I remember every year I would do this reassessment for the National Young Writers Festival because they would make you check a box that said (laughs) established emerging beginning. And like I saw myself move up those and it was almost a moment of personal realization at each point of like, am I still emerging? Have I emerged? Is Uh, this a a moment? I was referenced as established for the first time in my life um, earlier this year. And I was like, in which sense? <laughs> like, like I'm, I very much still feel like 
I've been saying this is a transitional year for me for the last 12 years. So <laughs> I think what I've done is transition from like 18 to 30, but I still feel like I'm very much in flux. It's like, I can't tell if I'm on the cusp or if I'm on, on the verge, but either way I'm on edge. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful way of putting it. The other thing I want to talk to you about today, yes. I didn't want this to, as much as I've enjoyed the chat so far, there was another thing that I needed to consult a real artist on a real because artist. it mm-hmm. fascinated me. And this was a <laughs> review of a statue, a sculpture that was in The Age, uh, a Jeremy Deller statue, father and son. The first review of this was talking about all the... Um, biblical implications let's say in the symbolism within this sculpture and the response was did you not realize this was a sculpture of Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch <laughs> to which to the author's credit they then wrote a actually I didn't realize this and does it matter I just want to get your view both on taking through a bit of this story and how you felt about it the the follow up article was so inter- was more interesting than the first mm-hmm. review I would say because it's so rare to have people admit they're wrong <laughs> or admit that they absolutely I, I, I think in the art world there's a lot of kind of shame around not understanding a work that's why I think everyone stands in galleries puts their finger to their chin and just nods because we're all so scared of misinterpreting something and being seen like we're not smart enough to get it. Um, so for a reviewer to come out or a critic to come out and, and say, oh, I didn't actually get that, but doesn't matter, I think is really wonderful <laughs> because, um, yeah, there is the whole, like, there's the intention behind a work from an artist, which I guess you hope is communicated and received, but the beauty of having work in public spaces is that people get what they get from it and you can't hold on to that too firmly because you'll get tortured by it or the misinterpretation like the only time I've had a work reviewed (laughs) in a newspaper was for my big cloud drive artwork Mm -hmm. which was basically 200 ceramic clouds on a wall but there was an AR component so when you looked at the clouds through your phone messages from the public dropped down and it changed every time you moved to a different cloud. And this reviewer completely ignored that. I didn't participate in the AR artwork and literally just said clouds on a wall, like entertaining, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and it was in the bloody Sydney Morning Herald. And, like, <laughs> and there was a moment of me being like, oh, this feels really bad. Like, I feel like the work's been misrepresented and that it's been like cheapened, blah, blah, blah. But then it's kind of like, well, 70% of people probably did just walk past it and look at the clouds and say, huh, clouds. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's kind of like this double-edged thing. I think it's, um, I think removing the stigma around misunderstanding artwork is probably... Mm-hmm. A step in the right direction because people might feel more uh, more free to to ask questions and to um, share their own interpretations. 
The piece is quite beautiful for that. It does have these moments where it's like, I could have justified this through Roland Barthes' Death of the Author. I could have used this method as a get-out-of-jail-free card. <laughs> Just decided not. I'm going to own up to it. I stuff this one. I really like that. And I was just wondering, from from your perspective, mm-hmm. do you have so comedians have such a hostile environment, like a uh, hostile relationship with reviewers? Like everyone knows the night that their reviewer is coming in, you're in a dead panic. You try and pack the room with your friends, mm-hmm. and then universally, kind of you you pretend you don't read the review you read the review you hate the review and then you justify well it's like the the famous comedy thing is it's a two star but it reads like a four star (laughs) you gotta have a type four um (laughs) yeah look i um there's nothing more stressful for me than being in a room when my work is hanging and watching people look at it it truly fills me with anxiety um which I'm going to have to get over at some point, but I'm not there yet because people do just look so solemn when they're looking at art. Like they don't give a lot away. It could be, they could be quietly thinking how much it resonates with them, or they could be quietly thinking how the fuck did this get up? Um, And you just can't tell by looking at them often. So me being somebody who has wavering, a a wavering sense of self-worth and, you know, a sexual relationship with imposter syndrome has <laughs> a tough time um, watching people experience my work. I, I think I often expect the worst and project the worst onto the faces of innocent people who probably don't care that much. I also think like it's really rewarding when you see somebody read into something completely different. Listening, look, this is going to really have me blacklisted in the arts community, but listening to Taylor Swift all too well from the Vault 10-minute version, not everyone's had a three-month relationship with Jake Gyllenhaal, but people read into their own, like, certain lines match certain things, and you kind of put a jigsaw together of, like, things that you can relate to. Mm -hmm. I think people do that with music. I think people do that with films. Like, different things resonate for different reasons. Um, and then you kind of connect the dots yourself and you take away what you want from that. I'm thrilled that I get to say this, but we will have more on the Taylor Swift 10 minute all too well later in the show. From the vault? From the vault. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like our ideal space is kind of halfway between, because I'm I'm very much on record as a comedian who believes that uh, the audience gets in the way of comedy and I do not want anyone in the room where I'm performing. I feel like we're about halfway through. I would like to have my jokes in a gallery where I do not have to be there and they go in and react. Yes. And I think you would like your artworks to appear on stage, Which get a quick reaction, move on. Honestly, like, I, I, I barely understand the physical world. So the idea of metaverse and, NT, and, and NFTs really... Um, I just I don't understand NFTs at all, but the the prospect of being able to make and sell work without any human interaction is really appealing to me. <laughs> like the idea that someone anonymous could just buy it, I could get the money, the art belongs to them in some way. I don't understand blockchainy thing. Um, bad for the environment, but what isn't? Um, I see the appeal because. Honestly, it's very taxing to have to, like, navigate the opinions of other people when sharing incredibly earnest (laughs) personal work. Is this what the last two years have done to us? We've just realised that other people are a luxury and we don't have to (laughs) indulge it. 
yeah, look, it's it's interesting because for me, I, I didn't go through the art. I, I didn't go to art school, and I haven't kind of had a traditional trajectory in the art world. I kind of just rent out my own spaces half the time and put on my own shows and. A lot of my work is direct to people who seek it out. So I'm lucky in the sense that um, if you're following me and buying my work, there's a good sense you relate to what I'm doing and I don't have to deal with too much. Um, like there's no foot traffic. There's no one walking past coming in and telling me it sucks. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I think I, I do quietly enjoy the the solitude of, of making and sharing work from home. But... I do aspire to being the kind of person who is able to navigate a room full of people with grace, humour and minimal anxiety. <laughs> what inspires you to, when when your work takes such, uh, like has to come from such a, a emotional place, but also like has, like has this turn of joy and humour and, mm-hmm. and light to it, particularly when those aren't many of the days we're experiencing right now, mm-hmm. how do you find yourself inspired to create new work? I think for me, because I, you know, I've been spending a lot of the year kind of working on screenplays and writing and doing my art and doing my painting, my ceramics, I I kind of get to rotate myself through different, (laughs) through different things. So there's, you know, when I hit a dead wall with my writing, I'll put my laptop down and do a drawing or so I'm, I'm now, I never feel too stuck in the one thing for too long, which certainly helps. Um, but I think, honestly, it's just like a desperate need for myself to be able to untangle some really complex feelings that I'm still trying to untangle. It's, it's very much a me learning as I go. I don't plan ahead with much of my work. It's normally pretty intuitive and pretty much like I've never sat I've never really planned a tile before I engraved it like I've, I'll roll it out and then think of what I'm going to write as I do it um which is why the words often don't fit because <laughs> <laughs> all this time I thought this was a brilliant aesthetic choice <laughs> yeah the words getting you know steadily smaller as I as I reach the end of the tile is um I'd love to say that's an aesthetic choice just like my, I just like how I draw mitten hands for creative reasons and not because I just don't know how to draw fingers. Um, <laughs> I, um, a lot of it is just me needing to express myself and me needing to uh, externalise my feelings in a way that I can look at and understand and reframe because I honestly think if I, if I, if I wasn't making work about all this stuff, I would be... You know, I would need to be sedated because there's just so much happening on the surface level, on the global level, locally, family, internally. Like, there are just so many saucepans on the uh, on the stovetop, and they're all overflowing. And um, instead of addressing it, I'm just taking pretty photos of the stovetop, being like, <laughs> "Isn't this kind of funny?" <laughs> Um, the last thing I want to ask you, and I am asking everyone on this episode this question, so it's not a direct attack, but it just sounds like one. I'm a bottom. How do you? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all we need. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask, how do you sleep at night? 
Oh, not well. <laughs> not well at all. It's honestly been such a problem my whole life. I don't sleep very well. I, I'll go to bed at 10 and lie there until 1.30 or 2 most nights. Um, yeah, it's really hard to switch off. I um, A lot of kind of reaching the end of sleep meditations and then like the silence that follows and then starting a new one. Um, I am trialing CBD oil at the moment, which I'm hoping will help. Um, experimenting with CBD oil while recording a podcast feels risky, but I'm, I'm quite dangerous. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, I guess my answer would be, I don't sleep very well. I have never remembered a dream in my life. Oh my God. I am the same of this. I've never remembered a dream in my life. People and... talk about their dreams in these, you know, exquisite, beautiful details. I'm like, wow, you really create forms and worlds in your, in your sleep. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I could have been out for a decade. I, once I'm down, I'm out. <laughs> I'm absolutely – and also, pe like, the cliche is that, um, oh, oh, they're talking about their dreams. It's so boring. Like, this is fascinating to me. You have an totally. insane hallucination that's like a, like a, an experimental piece of Italian cinema. Totally. I know pe the way people describe them with such vivid detail is honestly incredible, and I'm always interested to hear, you know, until the five-minute mark. Like, Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wake I wake up with absolutely nothing to contribute um, from the dream except, you know, exhaustion and a need for a three shot long black coffee. But um, yeah, I do find myself kind of I have like a rolodex that goes from like you know financial problems and global problems and family problems and then interpersonal problems and then. If everything's okay, I, I start to worry about sillier things. So um, there's always something there. It's just kind of the magnitude of it. When you're reading a book, yes. do you get images in your mind of what you're reading or do you just understand the words as you go? Like if they're describing a room, do you picture the room? Oh, my gosh. This whole, this whole conversation is the most fascinating, confusing thing to me. I think I'm versatile. I think I can do both. I think sometimes I imagine things mm -hmm. visually. Often I do, but then not always. But when some people tell me that they never imagine it, is that you? I never imagine it. Really? Yeah, I think it's why I can never get into like fantasy novels and things because for me <laughs> this is just two pages of what leaves are like and I know what leaves are like. It's not painting a beautiful picture for me. Wow, it's so interesting. So if you were reading like Lord of the Rings, you don't have an image in your head of what the dragon looks like. Not at all. Not at all. And like, I, I will get this, this, I know this is bizarre. And it's also like a problem I have when I'm writing narrative mm -hmm. that I have to remind myself to describe what things yeah, look right. like. Because I don't think to mention it. It is not important in my so like, scope of writing. Yeah, it's so interesting to me. It's crazy the way that we don't know how each other experiences the world. Like, we do, to a certain extent, assume that there's a similarity in the way we interpret things. And then, yeah, that, that whole conversation around, 
visualization is really the other the other one that sticks with me from it is always uh internal monologue which is like particularly in a lot of baby books yeah. they tell you that your voice is going to become the internal monologue for your child which is like Terrifying. i had a moment reading this where i was like my parents aren't my int- oh no <laughs> <laughs> i i do definitely kind of there are certain moments that i narrate in my head mm-hmm I think. Do you have a constant dialogue going or are you not? Uh, more constant than I would like. Like I think two weeks ago I was standing at the espresso machine making a coffee and crying because it was just like one of those days. And the coffee machine was so loud and my crying was so loud. And then my brain was like, Sam, this would be a really good shot. <laughs> like this would be a really devastating sequence in like an independent gay film. <laughs> Take a mental note. Still crying, still making my coffee, but I think I think my most toxic trait is always trying to turn things into something creative. So I have trouble like silencing the mind. Even I'll, I'll be meditating and like planning two weeks worth of work, which is not what meditation is for. <laughs> Well, I, I hate to be the first one to say this to you, but rest, you beautiful busy. <laughs> Thank you. I hope I can soon. And honestly, the nerve of me to complain about being tired to a new dad. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. I, fi- I finally understand. This is a real like, ah, this is my big thought now. It's like, oh, my God, there are parents on the road every day. How are they doing this? Honestly, I... My respect for parents grows the more the more friends I have who have kids and like you know it's tough when they're babies and then it becomes a different kind of tough when they're toddlers and then a different kind of tough when they're teenagers. Wait, what? <laughs> I mean, this is just what I've read, <laughs> but obviously there's so much beauty that comes with it and family and blah blah. blah. But the respect that because I just I don't know that I could do all that and then also have a job and then also have friends. You know what? I'm I'm still working out if that is possible. <laughs> yeah, I guess you'll find out soon. <laughs> Here's hoping. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. It's been no. a treat to talk with you. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. That was Sam Leitendor. What an absolute lovely person to talk to. <laughs> Comedically, I want to say... But our next guest is a monster, but I'm actually bringing on my wife and I would love her to continue being my wife after this episode. So I feel I should find a new way into this discussion. (laughs) Uh, Our next guest, spoilers, is Miranda Tapsell, um, who I presume if you're listening to this, you know better than me. But uh, judging by the posters that are just to my right, uh, she is... In the Sapphires and Top End Wedding. And judging by the left of the office, which is the side I got to decorate, there is a framed Western Sydney Razorbacks jersey. Which, for anyone who doesn't know, that is an NBL team that hasn't existed for about 20 years. But I do plan on telling my child I played for. So no one ruined that for me. Uh, Miranda... 
is on for a few reasons. Firstly, she told me I better bloody have her on and I wasn't going to win that argument. Uh, the other, though, is that I want to talk a bit about method acting. And I feel it's an interesting area of discussion and I have always really enjoyed her take on it, which we'll get to. But it also came up a bit in light of Succession. Um, so we're going to talk about succession a bit and talk about method acting and this idea of, okay, if we're getting comfortable being ourselves, how do we pretend to be someone else? And also, how seriously do we take our jobs? Because that's something that will come up again and again and again in this episode and in general. Of we're getting to the point where you're not only your job, like you, we talk about this a bit later, but you have to, to get to where we all are trying to get to in life, you're told you have to grind, you have to work at it, you have to make this your calling. And then what if you don't want to? Or what if you do? And then you're like, okay, great, I have summited the mountain. I would like to be a three-dimensional person. And I feel like method acting is a great way of getting to that because we're going to talk about what it's like to work with someone who is being like that. All right, let's take a listen. This is Miranda Tapsell, who I think is pretty neat. Yuck. Cut that, cut that. No, we can cut it. What do you mean the show's going for four hours and 59 minutes and 45 seconds? Well, that's just not long enough. No one will fucking put up with that. I told them it's a five-hour show. Okay, we'll leave it in. What? No one believes I have a producer for this show? That's that's rude. Well, then we should probably just start the interview, because the longer this bit goes, the sadder it gets. Here's Miranda Tapsell. All right, the first thing I want to establish in this interview is just how high stakes it is. Because at any moment, <laughs> be a little baby that starts crying, and then we immediately begin a game of chicken as to who is going to get up and deal with that situation. <laughs> we are taking the time out of our day, out of our sleep-deprived day, to, to record a podcast in between the schedule of a screaming infant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And eventually we will have her on the show to, as soon as she's able to really verbalize, to just talk about what it's like being a baby and get a get a perspective on the new generation. I've, I've been saying for a while that what we're doing is because Zoomers made us feel old, we're now owning them by creating an even younger generation. <laughs> <laughs> We're also, um, I'm, I'm also a little bit hesitant um, to bring um, our kid on only because I know how much sash she already gives you. And, yeah, that's true. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, hmm, are you sure you want to do that to yourself? Like, <laughs> So the thing I wanted to bring you on to discuss is one of our favourite shows. Are you going to tell people who I am? I've already I've already told them who you are in the lead into this interview. Okay, that's good. 
<laughs> this is, I'm just not introducing you. It's you either can tell by context clues. <laughs> and also, we just established we have a child together. So, like, I feel that narrows it down. Be, no, it's just, I just think it's respectful to, like, tell people what my name is. I'm more than just your wife, mate. All right, uh, star of Top End Wedding and the Sapphires and Love Child and Little J and Big Class. Please welcome Miranda Colley. What? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> um. So what I want to bring you on here for isn't just to check in on our marriage, which would be a very involved segment to put out into the world. Uh, it was... Because we are both huge fans of Succession and we were actually both watching the end of the last season while feeding our infant daughter, which I think our general rule is like, it's not age appropriate, but she can't understand what's happening anyway, so it's fine for a while. We've got a little bit of a grace period there, though pun intended. Uh, But there was one article that came out a little while ago about Succession which was specifically about Jeremy Strong, the man who plays Kendall Roy. And this captured the world's imagination, I want to say, because both it was an incredible, one of those incredibly situ- incredible situations where the article and the way that the people, the actors behave in the article is a perfect parallel for the show. Jeremy Strong, Kendall takes himself very, very seriously. Yes. Shiv is trying to play both sides of the fence. Yeah, Kieran Culkin is jabbing at him the whole time. Like Sarah Snooker and Kieran Culkin are both playing their roles as much as Kendall is playing his role in it. Yes. But for anyone who hasn't read the article, what it is about is Jeremy Strong not believing succession is a comedy. And having a real like well method acting approach to this role where <laughs> there are there are a lot of things like um how you know he he relates to his character to the russian greats and, <laughs> and like like he's a succession's funny kind of like how chekhov is funny like, <laughs> i know he 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 really treats it like a Shakespearean character. Um, and I think for me, I just go, dude, like how do you have the energy to do that every day? You know what I mean? To actually put yourself, to actually convince your mind that everything that's happening to you is real. That's um, uh, that's so, uh, I mean, I respect people's process, but I think I just, I just, for, for me, myself, like as a performer, I, I don't have the stamina to do that every night. I think um, I, you know, and maybe I'm saying this as a theatre, as, as a theatre trained actor from drama school, but um, I'm one of those people that love to sort of dust my hands off the character and and say to myself, okay, I'm Miranda again. And I just think that um, also I, you know, I've actually, I've actually attempted that 
that kind of dredging up. Oh, of- so you've you've done method. You've done a bit of method acting. Well, uh, you know, I haven't like. You know, I haven't done a full Daniel Day-Lewis, you know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't... That's what I was wondering, if, like, that's that's where you were those six months I didn't see you. You were pretending to be a butcher. Yeah, I wasn't... I was. I didn't spend six months in the wilderness to understand what a Mohican in the 1800s... <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I didn't spend that whole time hunting deer. Like, you know, I... I that's just not how I would prepare for a character. But I have, like... I think because television works so fast, um, I understand why a lot of people um, like to, you know, play sad songs that make them cry if they're having to do an emotional scene. I understand if they um, need to apply um, something that's something that's happened to them in their own life to. Um, to kind of uh, understand where their character's coming from because when I was a young actor, a whole lot of stuff hadn't happened to me yet, you know, so I had mm. to I had to find what I what had happened to me and sort of apply that to um, the roles that I played. But I just realised as I got older it wasn't sustainable, you know what I mean, <laughs> to to do the, the, the like, famous... Um, I don't know if anyone's heard of the Dustin Hoffman story, but he, um, I'm, I, I've actually got to remember the actor, I believe it was Laurence Olivier. So, and Laurence Olivier, everyone knows that he was classically trained. And so he uh, ran around the block while Laurence Olivier just stood there waiting to deliver his lines. And he says to Dustin Hoffman, when are you going to start acting, dear old boy? Like something something along those lines I'm paraphrasing. But, um, you know, uh, I think that's the thing. If you, run around the, if you run around the block like 17 times for a take, you're going to be puffed out, you know what I mean, even if you are fit. And so <laughs> I, I don't know, that... that um, uh, I, Jeremy Jeremy Strong clearly has a very particular style of acting, and that I don't know. I just I, I just feel that that would I don't know. Like you'd have to be sitting around for a really long time waiting for him to get into character, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? This actually leads to something I want to ask you about. Is it annoying? to have someone doing method on the set, like on a shoot with you. Well, like I've been in, I've been in like shows before where, you know, the, the scene um, is driven by my character. Like my character might not be the major role, but there's a moment where my character's like driving the plot at that point, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's affecting the other main characters. Anyway, it's, it's, you know, it's, I guess, my character's moment and I've had, like, another person talk about, you know, the accuracy of the scene and the time that it's set in and he wanted to have this big chat about his character. Um, I, I can't ever say what project this was, but I was just like, come on, like... <laughs> 
you know, we were standing around and I was just like, let's let's shoot this, you know, because I was so nervous. I was a young actor. The cameras were on me. I wanted to do a good job and um, I wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible because I know how, you know, how, uh, you know, how hard the crew work and how long mm. they work for. And so, you know, I don't like taking up people's time. I'm very self-conscious about that. And so when... And I, and I really get hard on myself with the amount of takes that I do, you know. Um, mm. I'm not like Leo who has to do like a 100. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was just like sitting around just going, come on, mate, let's like, I wish I was like, I wish I was, I wish I had the same gumption that I've got now to go, come on, let's like, let's get going let's do Act, this dear boy Act, dear boy you know what i mean because i just <laughs> i'm just like but also that's the stuff you should have been asking ahead of time that's the stuff like you know if you want to ask about if you want to ask about what your character's doing and the clothes that they're wearing and the period that they're in that's the stuff you should be asking like in rehearsals with the director you should be reading that turning up with your script and going hey like you know let, I have these questions mm. so that you're not dragging it out like by the time we're on set that's that's just my little that's just my little thing like um I just I I don't I don't it it, it, it annoys me when I see that <laughs> in other people when you're sitting around and it like you're sitting in your trailer and you're like, or you're, you know, in the green room and you're waiting and you're waiting for that, like for the other actors to finish up. You're just like, what, what was happening? Like, why was this, <laughs> why was this so hard to figure out? Like, surely you just go in, say your lines, go home. Like what's, I don't know. <laughs> you make a good point that, the lighting operator doesn't get to be method. <laughs> the, the person who has to lay down cables and gaffer tape them doesn't get to say, actually, I need to think about my motivation for doing this. Everyone else is doing their job. Everyone else is doing their job. And um, it's not to say that you're not allowed to, you know, be creative and um, have new thoughts that come into, like, you know, have new thoughts about your character. But... Um, I think it's just about um, prepar like uh, preparation and being and being ahead of um, ahead of the ahead of the ball. You know, I think um, I think I, I just think it really. I, I, I think too that there's you don't get to connect with that actor as well. Oh, okay. Um, because I. I I worked with I worked with another actor on stage like many years ago and they were doing we were doing eight shows a mm -hmm. week, right? We only had one day off and um so we were absolutely smashing it out and it was quite a it was quite a horrific play. There was lots of, you know, there was lots of violence and bloodshed and um and Again, I, I probably <laughs> is this a boring is this a boring conversation to have because I can't talk about the actual projects that I'm. No, I'm incredibly <laughs> interested, but also it just means that uh, we get to all speculate because <laughs> now we know. No, this has a lot of violence. It's very confronting. I'm thinking Little J and Big Cars. 
yeah, the yeah, like um, you know, I'm a little seven year old, and <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, but no, um, I think you know, so it's it's a harrowing show to do every night, mm. and it is just not sustainable for someone to be in that kind of headspace, especially if mm -hmm. you know. Like my character was being, my character was killed, but the the lead was the one that was the killer, and he had to, he was just constantly, you know, at odds with himself every night because he's like, you know, I have to get into the headspace of this horrible, awful person. Oh my god! And so he's a method murderer. Well, like he's he's not actually going out and killing people. No, he's, I'm not presuming he did, but like to get in that, like to really put yourself inside the psychology, of, oh it's much God. worse if he is actually doing murders to understand oh my what God. it's like. Like he was just walking around in this dark headspace, like the whole time, and you know, like acting's all about giving eye contact and bouncing off each other it's like a tennis match when it's really good it feels like a tennis match and if it's well especially if it's well written and um so anyway that like um the show uh obviously had an impact on the people that came to see it you know there were lots of people that came out and go and that went oh my goodness you know what a powerful show and all of this sort of stuff um yeah, yeah. Like the actors had to pay for that. Do you know what I mean? Like he left exhausted every night. And I was like, and I, this, this might sound absolutely unprofessional, but I left my script in the rehearsal room. So there were like a set of lockers in the space and, uh, I had a, I had my own yep. for, my bag and i left my script i physically left my script there every night because i said i am not bringing this into i'm not bringing this this into my house and so and and it obviously meant like you know yep. in my in my um lunch hour i'd go through my lines and um if if i wasn't required in the scene i would still like, because I'd, I'd still have to be there. You, you'd still have to be um, in the, like, you'd still have to be in the rehearsal space, but I'd go and excuse myself and learn my lines so that by the time the end of the day came along, I would leave that at home and go, okay, I've done, I've done my bit. Do you know what I mean? And I'm so glad I did that because mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. was able to have, I was able to get through the long season because of it you know what i mean i had energy i wasn't sad it was you know because yeah. it was it was such a sad play it also sounds like you got to clock off like you you finished work for the day in a way that like that's something that like i don't understand about this when you are living in this mindset for months you're living in this mindset for months like you never go home from work and it would be like if if someone was like a, a butcher who is going home and still just perfecting their butchery skills or whatever like, that's a bit like, sad dude you'll be a vegetarian by the end of this man like because you'll be so sick of the smell of me <laughs> i just i don't know it's just it's just uh you know i just think it's i just think it's so bananas to me <laughs> to do that every night is there to your mind 
a discernible difference in quality because I can't like you always find out after the fact or in part of the promo run if I'm honest that someone's a real method actor or whatever but it's never that like to my experience the performance is so good that you're like oh they must have used this method or at least the difference between someone who puts themselves in this world to that degree and someone who treats it as work or or goes about in a different way. It doesn't seem like the drop... Like, in the sporting world, you can tell who lives and breathes the sport and who is just doing their job, and there's a discernible gap in skill because of that point. Is that true for acting, that the people who live and breathe this are a bit better? Well, that, but this is the thing, though. In film, right... It is undeniable how enigmatic Marilyn is on screen. You know what I mean? She wasn't mm-hmm. she wasn't consistent in her performances and she was often quite uh she was often quite um you know uh she wouldn't turn up to set and you know she had all of these things going on and um you know I think she was taking medication to help her um with her with her mental health and all of that sort of stuff but the thing was when she was there like it might have been the 15th take but it would have been absolutely magic and that's the thing you watch Daniel Day-Lewis and you cannot take your eyes off him it's really one of those it's one of those really difficult things you just go was was Marilyn method i think I think she was, you know, because she was plucked so quickly out of obscurity, I think she was, mm-hmm. uh, there was a, I think she had a version of the method. Do you know what I mean? Because, oh, okay. because uh, again, like she needed to, she needed to get that capture, that emotion in a very short amount of time. Like if she's late to set and they're just like, we need, we just need to get the shot. We just need to get the shot and go home. <laughs> just stand on the grate and we're going to yeah. blow your dress up. We just need to get it done. Yeah. You know, I think she did end up going, well, how do I, you know, what do I do to to be a good performer, you know what I mean? I think she was constantly trying to learn mm-hmm. different styles to, 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 to be a good actor. I think that's interesting. And I also, like, this, this brings me to what I think is, look, I know this is going to be a provocative question, but is this art's own fault for allowing pretension like this to seem as if it's an okay thing? Because frankly, I could not imagine a comedian before a show (laughs) being like, sorry, I have to get in the mindset of someone who really did just see something when they were walking down the street the other day. Like that we have created a world where it's perfectly normal for multiple actors to disappear inside the character of the Joker, because you really need to understand how hard it is to be a clown in the Batman series. Oh, my God. I I truly think a lot of people have gone, we have to respect this actor's process. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's always been a good thing. Um, I think because, you know, act, like so many actors have been given such leeway for that, because it gets the results, it mm-hmm. 
it in the end like just costs time and money and and I mean, we certainly don't have that here in Australia. We don't have the money to do that. Do you know what I mean? You can't be method on neighbours. <laughs> you can't. You can't be method on neighbours. Like they're just like, hey guys, we've got we've got a lot of we've got a lot of storyline to get through. Like <laughs> in Summer Bay, you know, yeah. just take your surfboard. Like we've already <laughs> set the surf shop on fire. You've got like one take before we have to get out of here. <laughs> and that's like that's the famous that's the famous thing that they say about you know Australian actors they're like wow they get it in like two takes and I was like yeah because that's all we get in here in Australia <laughs> <laughs> we've only got two and like that's what they say to you like you know if you've if you if you want the third take, they're just like, it's fine. We'll cut around it. We'll cut around it. <laughs> that is actually one of my favorite bits about the succession article is when Australian actress Sarah Snook, uh, Jeremy Strong has tried to run into this big long monologue like four times and she drops it. Oh, shut the fuck up. And they decide to keep that in as, okay, there's no monologue anymore. She just cuts him off at that point. <gasps> oh, that's so funny. I forgot about that bit. <laughs> oh wow that's like yeah is there any character that you could imagine that you would want to disappear into in this way or that you would have to disappear into in this way oh wow i've never oh i've never been asked this before um oh wow I'm very good at this miranda <laughs> oh calm down calm down um, <laughs> i Wow, I think, um, gosh, I think one thing that I'd be, one thing that I'd take very seriously is if I was playing a real-life person in a biopic. Mm -hmm. Especially... Yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, I'm Indigenous, so if I'm playing, if I'm playing an Aboriginal person, yeah, if I'm playing a prominent Aboriginal person, then mm -hmm. I would obviously be taking that a lot more seriously. Than My recurring pitch that you should be the biopic for Yvonne Gulgon Corley. <laughs> oh my god, she would be so great. I'd love to play her. <laughs> and like, this is this is like if I so if she was if she. If she agreed yep. for me to play her. If she, she's listening. And, <laughs> or if someone cast me right, I would be, like, at that court every day working on my backhand. <laughs> because I wouldn't want to look because I'm so not sporty either. <laughs> I do yoga and that's my fitness for the day. Do you know what I mean? Like walking my dog. I'm like, oh, that's... Oh, that got the heart going. But <laughs> <laughs> like really, um uh, you know, I in terms of like doing anything like strenuous as tennis, I would be like, okay, I am gonna get up and I'm gonna learn how to do it. I remember like um I remember getting taught it um at school and mm -hmm. I was 
terrible at it. <laughs> so I like the idea why... that they're going to have to do like the old cowboy film kind of Texas switch thing where you see you pull your head back and then a cut to a very muscular arm swinging through the shot in a very close zoom and back to you wiping sweat off your brow. Here. Oh, what a good shot that was that I just did. <laughs> And, or they'd probably cut away to real footage of being <laughs> on and they'd just go, yeah. <laughs> so they'd cut right before I swing <laughs> and then and then they'd cut to the real-life footage. This leads but, to an area that, a, a method area I want to ask you about, you know, just a little tangent, which is the Lady Gaga House of Gucci area where what happens when oh you delve into a character God. and you want to do this accent for months and you make your whole life on and off and everyone else in your life deal with this situation and then it's just not very good. Oh, oh my God. That would be the most infuriating thing to do <laughs> on set. I'd just be like, this is how you say it. This is how you say it. It's not. This is not the accent. You're not Russian. You're Italian. Come on. Like, I just. But also, I think um, I think Robert Pattinson um he he had to do he had to do an um he had to do an American accent. I think, and he was like, I don't need a um I don't need a voice coach. This is all character driven. And I was, and everyone was like, okay, cool. And then his accent was terrible. <laughs> See, though, I love Robert Patterson for that because he is the most low effort good actor in the world like he he refused to work out for batman like he's just like nope not doing that seems hard don't want to like <laughs> i i respect he's at the opposite end of the method scale to me where he's just like yeah i'll just show up and i'll say what i want to say who cares <laughs> i'll just say whatever i'm feeling on the day <laughs> oh my god i just i don't know that it would just I would just want to go home. <laughs> Did you, like, is this something that when you're in acting school, sorry, when you're in NIDA, uh, did you <laughs> try this out and realise it wasn't for you or did you just know immediately, like, I do not want to do this? Oh, so, no. Um, at at my drama school, uh, method acting was completely, um, like, dismissed. Um they believed you needed to use your imagination. They believed that. Um, oh, so it was like a forbidden art. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because they they are like Laurence Olivier believes you should just be able to imagine how that feels. You should be empathetic enough to understand mm -hmm. what that character's going through. You'd think, how would I feel if this happened to me? Um, and so. Uh, I I guess, you know, I mean, drama school was still a slog, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. they still had a very strong idea of what acting was, what your voice should be, um, yeah, lots of things. But I think one thing that I did take away from that is that the safety of your imagination was such a, was such a great um, comfort to me because I felt like I could even – take it further do you know what I mean because yeah. I thought to myself oh yes like because I would never like I mean that's the whole point of becoming an actor right because 
you get to you get to do and say things that you'd be too scared to do in real life you know mm. um like that's interesting you- it does almost like <laughs> limit creativity to be like i'm just going to be a butcher and here's what being a butcher is like i don't know why my only example is butcher i think it's Daniel Day <laughs> lewis is in my head but um i think but- it still blows my mind that he like not only spent time being a butcher he got himself into such a state of grief when he was playing hamlet i heard anyway that like he actually saw he actually envisioned his own father who had passed away not long before he did hamlet so he freaked himself out and ran out of the theater and never returned my my favorite Daniel Day Lewis one is when he uh, is about to do Lincoln and he's taking a tour of the museum and they're like, oh, and we'll now take you to the section about his death and he's like, I do not wish to see that a man shouldn't know how he's going to die. It's like, motherfucker, I reckon you've heard the story. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're going to. Be- oh my god, I thought it was natural causes. It's a pretty famous death too, right? Like, and I would say probably in the script. <laughs> It is most definitely in the script. <laughs> <laughs> to quote, to quote uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character in Tropic Thunder, I don't read the script. The script reads me. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I like. I this is why I want to ask about this. If you aren't doing that, you do get to be. You get to take different choices, right? Like, and even. Not necessarily a better choice, maybe a weird choice, but a different choice. And I love, like, I love when an actor makes a properly weird choice. Well, that's that's like what I was like. That's what I was encouraged to do. Like, they were super like tough on me. Um, like while I was a student at drama school, but one of the things that they kept trying to say to me was. If you don't make the wrong choices, then you don't know what the right one is. So muck around, like, as long as, as long as you're using the script to inform you of your choices, then the rest is your playing field. You know what I mean? Like, cause I was always so timid to make a choice. I was so young when I went in, I was like, I, I'd only, I'd only just turned 19. So, and you know, I was from, I'm from a, like, you know, I'm from a rural area in Australia. So, um, you know, it was all very, it was all very new to me. And I was like, oh, this is like, this is what people do when they act. So it was very new to me, but I, I really, I was really emboldened by that. And I thought, okay, well, I don't know how to be brave, but I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna certainly give it a crack, you know? And that's, I went out into the industry having that kind of, I guess, courage or stupidity. I don't know. Which one is it? <laughs> and just a tidbit for the listeners. Um, you have to make the wrong choice to know what the right one is, was the first line of Miranda's vows when marrying me. <laughs> Life is, uh, you know, is a box of chocolates, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
How do you sleep at night? Oh, not not very well. <laughs> not at the moment. <laughs> I've got a I've got a very demanding um, one month old. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That like I do know the answer. This is the one time I've asked this question on this episode and have actually known the answer. <laughs> it's about in two hour chunks. Well, I should be more honest, soundly, because you get up and look after her. <laughs> do you have a method for going to sleep? Like, is it something you think about? Like, how do you blank your mind out? Is there something you have to do? A ritual? Oh, yeah, I'm super hippie about it. Like I listen to sleep stories and, um, you know, I, I have, I do sleep meditations. Sometimes I'm a bit, sometimes I'm a bit lazy with that though. And I put on like a really, like a story I know well, not one that keeps me up. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I, it takes me a long time to wind down. Like I'm not one of those people that can just lie in bed and go to sleep. Like I think about so many things that happened in my day and like, you know, you always say to me, um, can you please stop asking for a report card? Like you, <laughs> you did everything you could today. <laughs> you, so, so what if you didn't think you were as productive as you thought you were? Just, it, it doesn't matter. Um, so, you know, I do love the idea of having an oil diffuser with lavender and listening to something calming while I brush my teeth and hop into bed and all of that sort of stuff. So it takes me about like an hour. <laughs> and the soft, relaxing background noises of your husband playing hours of video games in the lounge room while you rest. Oh, my God. Or basketball. <laughs> yeah. Catching up on the important things now that the family's all asleep. <laughs> Miranda Tapsell, thank you so much for joining us. And as I say to all of our guests, I love you so much and I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you. <laughs> I love you, James Colley. Thanks for having me. That was Miranda Tapsell, who has dedicated herself to the role of pretending she loves me for some time now. Why go there? Why go there? It was such a nice chat. <laughs> oh, I'm having fun. Are you having fun? You're an hour and a half into this, unless you use the chapter skip button, which is new. And maybe you should try it out. I am going to be a little bit hurt, though. Is that okay? Is that all right? That... It's perfectly okay for you to use it. I think this is like a magazine. You should be flicking to the parts that interest you. But I'm going to be a little bit hurt and you hurt my feelings. And every time, I, this is in the coding of the button. Every time you press it, it delivers a small electric shock to my neck. It's a really bad program. I don't know why I signed up for it. Uh, our next guest. I want to talk about how we stay excited about what we're doing, how we keep things fresh. And there's one very good example of that, which is a show that I am a more recent convert to, but have been obsessed with for some years now, Survivor. Survivor is 41 seasons in, and the fans will tell you it's as good as ever. And there are certain moments that are, better than ever, or still fascinating, or still interesting in a new way. And I want to talk 
about how you keep a show fresh like that and how you keep shows interesting. And so I brought on the person who helps me be employed to make shows. That's how you word that. I'm employed for writing, by the way. Uh, Will Anderson, who himself has, if you don't know, which is odd, uh, kept Gruen on the air for well over a decade now. And it's always been a focus of any of these shows that I've worked on from when I started working on them, and presumably before, I don't think they came up with the idea specifically because I was there, but how to keep shows fresh and interesting. And we actually get into a bit of a discussion at the top of this, which wasn't really planned. None of this is super planned, as you can tell. But uh, we get into a discussion at the top about Question Everything, uh, the show that uh, we built for last year. We built in there and uh, put on air in the pandemic last year. Uh, And we talk about some of the challenges of that and what our hopes are for the next season, the season coming up. Um, I think it's a very interesting chat. It's also, it's both interesting from um, the standpoint of like how in a broader sense we keep these these things exciting and how you look for changes. But also there's just a little bit of how the sausage is made because I think a lot of this is just we hadn't started pre-playing the next season yet so what you're listening to here really is a lot of our just first conversations of like um just a peek behind the curtain is we were working on that season of the show all the way up until Gruen started Gruen starts the next week we go through and by episode seven or eight of Gruen uh Grace is born and so I'm doing some edits from home when we're up in the middle of the night. But other than that, didn't really have a chance to debrief with anyone about the show, uh, either of them. And so what you're catching here is really our first discussions of what were your thoughts on this? And I think it's it's an interesting chat for those both inside and outside the industry but you know that's not mine to judge the skip button is there and all you'll be doing is sending a little little shock to my neck which will hurt me greatly but if you have to do it i i mean i understand i'm just that kind of guy i'm a very understanding guy um but if you have to do it you can i'm just saying it's a very good chat so you should listen to it uh so let's get to it now this is will anderson I think it would be surprising to a lot of people that you are quite a bit of a reality TV head. Well, I am. So the biggest turnaround, of course, the one that uh, one day we can explore the darkest 180 that anybody has ever done, which is my turnaround on the TV show Gogglebox. Because (laughs) I remember we were on the Gruen set one day when somebody announced to me that there was this new show called Gogglebox and it was going to be a whole bunch of people sitting around watching TV. And as I am prone to do on a Google record day, just to fill in time while we're, you know, working on something else, I just Mm -hmm. try to entertain the people who are there on the panel with some rant about something. And that day I decided it was going to be that Gogglebox was the worst show in the history of television. And as we speak here today, uh, we have watched nothing but the UK version of Gogglebox 
for the last <laughs> two weeks. We are watching episodes like we recently went through the pandemic episodes, so the start of COVID. So it's just amazing to see them talk oh, about wow. what COVID was like at the start and how very much some of the same arguments we're seeing played out in the press now, which is like it's not worse than a cold, it's not going to spread, none of us are going to get it. Oh, now, they, now they're going through the lockdown period. Oh, it's a bit of a novelty at the start. Oh, hang on, this is getting serious. We're not being served well by our leaders. We're getting confused messages to see that play out in real time in people's lounge rooms. It's really like, oh, wow, a lot has. I feel like in the last couple of weeks, I have binged the pandemic through the eyes of the cast of UK Gogglebox, who have been the only family that I've really seen. So um, that's my biggest reality turnaround is, uh, is Gogglebox. That's fascinating to me. I like, I personally, the second any new show tries to reference the pandemic, I'm off. I don't want to think about it. But Gogglebox, I would 100%. I want to know how they dealt with the pandemic. Well, because they're not doing it in reflection. They're doing it in real time. So you're seeing a little documentary about people. And it's the perfect documentary because it was already set up, which was, you see everybody in their homes. The whole premise of Gogglebox is here are these people, here are them in their homes watching TV. And of course, we went into a period in the world where most of us were just Goggleboxing. We were stuck in our own <laughs> homes watching these TV shows, sharing our opinions about these TV shows, trying to make a call based on the public communication from our leaders, how serious the pandemic was or otherwise, to then see them like watch people on TV, watch health, British health ministers try to justify the decisions they were making around COVID and then seeing these ordinary people all over the UK having their, now we've actually moved out of the pandemic and we've gone back to the Brexit years. And it's amazing to see almost the same pattern like play out. They basically, they got no relief, the poor Brits. Like they really had two years of having these exact same debates about Brexit and then they went bang straight into a pandemic. And we're at the period now where Theresa May is like on her, you know, final legs and the whole argument that they're having in their living room is very much like, yeah, but she's going to hang on because. I mean, who are they going to get to replace her? It's not like Boris Johnson could be Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> well, we actually got a lot of, when we were doing QE this year, uh, this is very much a show that you have built to be in front of an audience and then we kind of had the audience taken away from us during pre-production. I remember as they were installing the seats saying to you, I'm so glad we have to actually perform this in front of an audience and you turned to me and saying, shut the fuck up, which proved to be quite prescient about that. But then the first audience we got, really, the first people we could see reacting to the show was Gogglebox. It's how we experience people experiencing our show. It's actually really amazing because, yes, we made this show QE, um, Question Everything. You can still find it on ABC iView if you want to have a look at the first series, but Talk about the way that we have thought about the timeline of this pandemic and when it might end and the false hope perhaps sometimes we've had. You know, we did that first season of Gruen, like, you know, in 2020, and it was almost a novelty. Like, you know, as a team, we were very much, we've been doing this show for over a decade. Here is a new challenge for us. We're going to have to find out a new way to do this show. I bet we learned, and I remember saying it at the time, this is kind of exciting. I think we're going to learn some things about the show this season that we wouldn't learn otherwise, that we will carry on when there's an audience back. And 
I absolutely believe that's true. There's like key parts mm -hmm. of that program now that will never be anything other than the way they were during the pandemic. And we were industry leading on our show, the way we incorporated like, you know, that television screen of Russell actually onto the desk. Like there were other people in the industry at the time just going, oh man, you guys have done that better than anybody else in the industry and i can say that very proudly because that is something that neither you or i have anything to do with that is, yeah. <laughs> that is nothing to do with either of us in fact i was the person who kept making things more difficult because i was like i don't want to have earpieces in i want to you, can you come up with a way that we can still hear russell but we don't have to wear earpieces and they're like well no other show in the history of television has but i guess we could have a crack at it <laughs> It is remarkable, though, because even now, even two seasons in, you still tune into shows and it looks like someone's about to address the Power Rangers or the United Nations is getting a very important message. Whereas this is a way, like, every show we've worked on the last couple of years has changed dramatically because of pandemic world. We've had to, we've had to rapidly adjust. And now it feels like with all hope, if we're, let's say if we're just pushing through the way we are pushing through and the way these peaks and troughs seem to go, that we're then about to start facing, like hopefully this year, a lot of these shows that are done for the last couple of years with no audience have to now face an audience again and have to see, because there are certain changes that I know we made on the weekly or we made on Grew that are going to be difficult to undo or to incorporate in front of an audience just because your rhythms change yeah so it makes you think about the role of the audience i mean i'm going to share something that you probably you know say off air but it's your like if people have made it to what i imagine is hour 17 of this podcast uh, <laughs> then we can give away those secrets thank you for keeping listening um, I hope you did it all in one go or you're a coward. That's my philosophy to James's podcast. I know he says that you're allowed to listen to it in little bits, but if you don't listen to the whole thing in a row, you're a coward. So um, what does the audience mean to the show? That is a very interesting question. And on Gruen, what I found was that the audience was, they're my ally. You know, I am on that show very much the voice of the people at home, looking at it and going, why, why that? Why that? Why did they say that? Why is it that colour? Why is it that person? Like, that that's my role. And I, it's not really me. You know, I am just the voice of a whole bunch of people who ask those questions in meetings and put that show together. But I am the conduit for that. But more than that, I'm the conduit for that for the audience at home. And the audience in the studio normally stops our show from being a conversation about advertising because as yeah. soon as it gets too much about the world of advertising, I can use the audience as my, you know, choir, as my backup, as my chorus, as my, you know, you know Sparta 300, you know, with these people in these bleachers at the ABC, I can defeat the entire world, your multi-billion world <laughs> of advertising. You are my power, you know, and to take that away really I was very confronted by the fact that like a lot of the things that I say about advertising are just mean and cruel. If there's not an audience <laughs> yeah. there to enjoy them, basically you've invited then a whole bunch of people over from an industry that they love and work in to just go, you're all terrible. And oh God, this feels much weirder without an audience here to back me up. It's just me alone. I just feel like a real bad host now. <laughs> so that's the audience in Gruen. And that's why we've had to like, you know, we've made changes that, but that's adapting a pre-existing show to a new mm. circumstance. 
I imagine the question everything, like the whole point behind it was there's all these, you know, younger comedians who have had to put their careers on pause for this entire period of time. At the end of this pandemic, what if I had a show where we could put those people not only on TV but back in front of a big live studio audience? It was meant to be a mm -hmm. celebration. It was meant to be a coming out party. The audience there were going to be the wind beneath the comedian's wings. You know, part of the joy of being on the show, I hoped, would be for some of the guests on the show, that 200 people in the studio would be as big a crowd as they've ever performed in front of. And I remember the early days of Good News Week. For me, that was the same thing. Like going to do Good News Week was, oh, this is the best gig that I've done. Like, you know, not only am I doing yeah. a TV show, but if they didn't film this, this would still be awesome. And I wanted that for the young comedians. And then I think we started doing pre-production on the show the first week of the Sydney lockdown. I I remember distinctly because I drove to Sydney. I did some of the pre-production like remotely because of COVID. And then I drove into Sydney and it was the two hours off what it normally takes me to drive from where I live to Sydney because <laughs> there was no traffic going towards Sydney. <laughs> like, you know, you're just like, I am driving clearly into a lockdown, into Armageddon, not yeah. in the opposite direction. And that, that probably should have been a sign. And so then we entirely had to make a show from scratch that was meant to be a coming out party in front of like a, an audience without an audience, with a whole bunch of comedians, not mm -hmm. from all over Australia, but not from even every local government area of Sydney. You know, like, you know, when we were booking the show, we had a little map of local government areas. There was a couple of guests who were on our original list of this is a person we are definitely having on the show, booked them for workshops, had them penciled in for shows, and the entire time they were just unable. They lived in the same city, less than 20 minutes in an Uber away from the studio we were shooting in, yeah. and they were not legally allowed to come in and do the show. Yeah, I had to get specific extra exemption from the state government because my LGA was considered criminal and travelling outside of it was a real, they'll pull you over and you have to explain what the hell you're doing. And the, I, ca I came to use the term essential comedy for a while there. I've driven into a lot of lockdowns to do a lot of shows and it's strange. You always get these billboards up being thanking the frontline health workers and the labourers. Very few thank you satirical comedians for coming into this. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming in and making a whole bunch of new enemies during a time when people had time to really dox your Facebook page. You guys are doing essential work, much like the doctors and nurses on the front line. <laughs> Without the audience there, we firstly had comedians who weren't doing gigs, so they didn't have any audiences at all anyway. Often we were the first person they'd spoken to in their entire week, you know. We had to create that energy between ourselves. But I also think in regards to developing a show, the audience is your focus group. Like I often say with stand-up, if you want to see the show that I thought was going to be my show, you have to come on the first night. Because after that, it's a collaboration with the previous night's audience, what the show is. You know, like it's a focus mm -hmm. group. Like comedy is the ultimate focus group. You put it in front of an audience each night and you change it a bit depending on their reaction. And to be making a brand new show without having an audience there in the studio to go, like, is this bit working? Is this working? What are they responding to? What are they leaning into? Like, we can guess all those things about Gruen because we have, like, enough experience. But to, to be doing that with the new show, we had no external feedback to what mm -hmm. the first time we saw an audience enjoy the show was on Gogglebox. 
like that was the first time that we got to sit there and go, oh, here are all these different families. Look at their reaction to our show. It's just strange. Like we we had to not just um, prepare these comedians who had not spoke to an audience, but we had to play our staff against itself, which is a very strange thing to do on a show. But we would like our scripts look like they had been released by the cia under freedom of information like we would redact them to make sure people weren't checking the jokes before we played them on screen which is the strangest thing i've ever had to do in a show it's like i mean the fact that we like made a show from scratch in lockdown without any of these elements all these things against us but I think that one is the one that no one but us will understand how ridiculous our process <laughs> became because like normally on a show like this, you know, we're a small show anyway. So you have a small team. So everybody chips in on everything. That's the, I love making those sort of shows. Like there's no sort of, Hey, you're the person who does the video editing, but you, so you don't get a say in this. Like we work on a show where everybody, you know, chips away at little bits, you know, they notice the statistic, they find a different bit of video. Like it, you know, everybody works outside what would be their strict job parameters. And that's exciting. And that's what I talk about when I'm hosting it. You really are just the voice of a whole bunch of people who have, you know, contributed to what you were doing that day. And so I think that um, we, so we were doing this thing. So basically our, our team became our only audience and we knew it was important for the comedians, particularly on Question Everything, for them to have an audience. You know, that was going to make their performances better. So hmm our team became our audience, which meant that we, like the first few weeks, we're like, well, they're not laughing at any of the jokes because they've heard them five times. You know, the things that were in the <laughs> script, they've heard five times by the time we get to the actual show. So there was this weird dips in momentum. So then our only solution was, hey, you know those important rehearsals that we're all meant to have? Yeah, you're going to get 1.5 out of the five of those that you're allowed in the room for. <laughs> like, we are basically going to have this redacted script that you don't get to see the jokes. We're going to, like, send you out of the room and blindfold you when we're doing the rehearsal with the actual jokes in there for technical things. <laughs> then what, there was different teams that had different levels of access. So sometimes you'd be like, well, you can see two rehearsals, but you're not allowed to see any at all. And, like, that cameraman laughs really hard. So can we just actually spin him around in a circle for four hours <laughs> yeah. until the show because we want him to laugh. It was one of the more beautiful things I saw throughout the record was one of our uh, great researchers, David Cunningham, uh, when a fact was mentioned that I knew he had researched and he had brought to the script and brought to the meeting and then made sure it was in the script, ran through the rehearsals, and then when it was said on the panel, he went, ooh, yeah. <laughs> that's what we want. He gets it. Like there were some members of the team where I'm like, you're killing your own material. Like you're the person who came up with this great stat. You're in the audience. React to it. Give it a woo. Um, I, I, I think that there's something just incredible about that experience, but it also makes me feel like we didn't do the show. I don't know how you yes. feel about it, but I actually... No, I feel we did a bunch of pilot episodes for what this show could be. Yeah, and it's really weird for me because... It does not feel like it happened. I had a real uh, revelation when we were making it because I don't really watch Grun. Like, you know, uh, I've spoken about it publicly before. Like, for me, I guess the cycle has always been by the time we get to Wednesday night, I've already moved on because the way that our mm -hmm. week works, we have a Wednesday. I'm doing press all day on a Wednesday to publicize a show we've recorded on a Tuesday night. But 
midday on a Wednesday, we're having a meeting about the next week's show. So for me, yeah. I publicize all day and then like we have that meeting and I start thinking about the next week's show. And so I never watch the show on a Wednesday night. Like I, you know, I just have been doing it long enough that I kind of know what it's like. And I assume that if I'm doing anything wrong, somebody will tell me about it, but I don't watch it back. But with Question Everything, it was a completely different process for me. You know, like, A, we're not recording in front of an audience. And B, like at 9 o'clock on a Wednesday morning, I'm approving an edit and sending notes. And, you know, it's a very different, you know, project for me than what Gruen is. And what I realized is that I've, I've kind of always instinctively understood this, but I really realized that this year going through that process was is that I am not a, te- I, d- I don't make television. I, I really don't. And it's why I've never felt particularly comfortable in the television industry, despite the fact that I have had obviously been on consistently on television for 20 years now doing shows. And um, I like doing live shows. I like putting together a live show that you do in front of an audience. And for me, that always feels like the show. So on Tuesday night, when we record the show, that's it. I've done it. You know, I don't need yeah. to watch it back. I was there for the whole show. Like I saw everything that happened. You know, <laughs> yeah. like you know, I, I know everything about it. I saw the you know the entire amount of you know, get back documentary footage that Peter Jackson saw. You know, not just the end. <laughs> so, um, but not not doing that with you know with question everything and obviously really being involved in how do we improve this? How do we make this better for everybody? How do we pro- so solve the problems that are in front of us? I was like, oh, this is making TV. I felt for the first time in 20 years, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm making a TV show. I'm not making a live show that people film and then put on TV. And I don't like it. (laughs) That's what I've decided is that I have no real interest in making TV. I have an interest in doing a live show in front of an audience that people can film or not film. It is completely up to them what they do with it after I'm done with it. See, this is interesting because this is part of what we found doing the weekly in lockdown is I kind of love this part of it, like that we would shoot the show on a Tuesday and then almost Tuesday night and Wednesday in the edit room and things, piece it back together, like find out, say, a fact changes and we get Charlie down to re-record a line, which, by the way, is a much more in-depth, this is the part of like making the sausage where it took us three weeks to realise he needs to be seated wearing the same kind of cotton Uh tie and attach the microphone, all these little factors that make things sound right. But then we would re-piece together the show. And part of the fun at the initial stage of Question Everything wasn't, you're not just like... Gruen, I came on as a, like, the instruction I got was just don't ruin it. You know, just keep it on its tracks. It knows what it is. Just don't ruin it. Question everything is, like, we're still discovering. Like, I I suspect in season two there might be a little patch on the desk where a buzzer used to be and may never be again. (laughs) Like, there are things that we're finding out and you don't find out until you try it four times in front of half a million people. Yeah, right? And if you look at the first season of Gruen, we see that the advertising people are playing games. They're coming up with slogans for things. We're like the the pitch, which is like one of the most iconic parts of the program, obviously, up until the pilot episode. Yeah, so it was going to be an episode one. It was just going to be people presenting the pitches on easels, you know, on, on pieces of paper. <laughs> now, I'm not sure the show would have lasted through the first season if that decision. <laughs> and But we did a pilot in front of a live studio audience. So we were able to work out 
that that didn't work and come up with a different way for it. And what we didn't have for question everything was necessarily that. And so I think, yes, like, I mean, I hope that, you know, by the time we get to do season two, that there's going to be an audience there for the show Mm -hmm. uh, because I think it, I would love to see what the show looks like with an audience and I'd love to see what we think the show is after having, you know, another six months of, yeah, to think about, you know, how we can do it better. But I, every show that I've ever worked on, and I think part of the success of Gruen is that I think it's always about, like, I don't, that doesn't feel like a bad thing to me. Yeah. You know, it, it feels like one of those things that if we get a good run at it in front of an audience this time, there were so many things that worked about it. Like, all, there were so many good things in hard circumstances that you just go, well, if we add like guests from all over Australia and a studio audience were almost yeah. there already. And that's without the 150 things that James and I have come up with to change yeah. about the show. <laughs> things that are a good 85% no one will ever watch, ever notice as they watch the show. Um, there are So we were bringing you on this yeah. week because I want to talk to you about uh, – another show that adapted during the pandemic and also changed rapidly in its 41st season, which is Survivor. Now, we're both big Survivor heads. And this year, so they this, the slogan for this year was drop the four, keep the one. It's the first season of Survivor, which I don't think it was because there was a lot of, there was still a lot of extra stuff going on here. Their, their show construction has always been incredibly simple, but also fascinating to the process of making good television which is the core question they always talk about is is it fun is it fun to do this part of the show to do this part of the show to do this part of the show and i just wonder like how, how do you feel as someone who have you been watching through like of the 41 seasons how many do you think you would have ranked off but also like how do you feel about a, how a show like that changes to like bold and the beautiful proportions for sheer episode content levels but is still changing quite rapidly so uh, yeah it's it's fascinating so i can tell you exactly how many of them i've watched 40 40 or 41 Mm -hmm. so the only season that i have not seen as of yet uh, because normally i try to watch them in pretty much real time like i don't want spoilers and like i have a whole bunch of survivor podcasts that i like to listen to so I really do like to like mm-hmm. watch that week's episode, like listen to my podcast. You know, it's like I really can take a week with it. You know, there's this guy, um, Rob Sistanino, who's a former Survivor player and mm-hmm. he has like a range of podcasts and they come out on different days and you get sort of catch-up interviews and exit interviews and all sorts of things. So I really love to like watch an episode a week, like process what I think about that episode, then listen to the discussion around it. Like really, it's like it, I, I enjoy all of that about it. And the only season I haven't seen was like a few years ago where there was a particularly problematic season of the show. Like there was a whole bunch of, I believe there was some sort of, I, I haven't seen it, but like so there was some, sort of some, you know, uh, sexual uh, assault sort of stuff or at least some, you know, like, I, I, again, I don't know enough to speak about it, but I know there was shit going down and people weren't happy. And for whatever reason, I was in the middle of something else and I hadn't caught up with it and then it gave me no real desire to see a show that I have liked going through, you know, like sometimes when you've got a friend who you're like, I love you, but if we go out tonight, I'm going to love you less at the end of the night, yeah. you know? So for yeah. the sake of our friendship and the place that you're in right now, I just, let, let's just not catch up because 
you know, mm-hmm. um, and I was a bit like that with that season of the show. I think I'll go back and revisit it at some stage, particularly now that I've seen that they've clearly tried to address some of the, and that's what I have liked a lot about this season is that they have recognised that their audience feels like there are problems with the format or there are blind spots in the format, whether it be as little as that Jeff used to introduce everybody by saying, come on in, guys, or whatever it was, you know, using the term guys, and they had a conversation around whether that's an appropriate thing anymore and the use of language and those sort of things, that it's confronting that. And obviously, race was a massive story at the heart of, you know, this season of Survivor. So I've watched 40, and I've, like, I've really loved it because of the very thing that we're speaking about, which is... There's a temptation with a successful format to not change the format, right? Yeah. And this is like, I mean, this is obviously very, uh, you know, sometimes you're attracted to things because they match your own mythology about, you know, how you view your life or see yourself. But I very much think that's what Gruen is. Like, I think Gruen is a better show because Gruen never went, we're really successful, let's stay the same. Like, even yeah. when audiences wouldn't have necessarily wanted us to evolve, we thought it was important for us to try to keep evolving. And sometimes we make decisions as makers of that program that we think are in the best interest of the program, where if, if you polled the audience, they might say, you know, blah, 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 you know, 90% says this guest should be on every week and this guest shouldn't be on ever again or whatever it is. But hopefully yeah. we know as the makers of the program what is actually good for the program and the reason that that person works or the reason that that topic works or the reason that we dealt with it in that way. It might not have been the way you as an audience are going, this is how we want to see it, but we were doing it because we thought we told that other story that you want to see before. We were looking for a new thing to do. And you're not always going to get that right. That's the scary thing. That's why people don't want to change. Hey, this works. Why would we fuck with this thing that works? I've always been of the opinion that You've got to improve the show 5% every year to feel like it stays the same. And you can't do that without just looking at everything and saying, could we do this better? And Survivor clearly over its journey has kept asking itself that question. Like, what is the balance of this game? Like, is it too far now in like alpha sporty types you know the sort of people who can win physical challenges maybe we need to pivot Mm -hmm. a little to the social game because the social games are really important dynamic i think why people like survivor oh maybe it's too much towards the social game so do we need to bring in more like sort of puzzles or you know are idols fun or is there too many idols now like you know what twists are we going to have what are the key core principles of the game you know like how do we choose a winner and what are the things that you have to do through this you know, game to be mm. knowledge? Because this is the incredible thing about Survivor, and I think always still the best thing is at the end of the day, whether you win or not depends on the votes of the people who are only on the jury because they got voted out for you to be sitting in that seat for you to be yeah. out to win a million dollars. And that is the bit, like anyone can get to the end, But you've got to get to the end and have those people who were eliminated week by week and their hope of winning that million dollars was snuffed out somehow by you probably or something that you had to do with. You've got to convince them, human beings, who all have their own individual reasons for choosing what the – because 
they don't get a set of parameters of going, you have to judge the winner based on, yeah, this, this, and this. No, they're all humans. Mm. So the strong person might be like, well, you outbested me and I am a strong person and I value that. Or the sneaky person might be, you outsneaked me and I'm going to hold that against you forever and vote for everyone else or admire it. Because, I mean, Mm. it's human psychology at the end of it where regardless of how many challenges you win, regardless of how you got there, you then have to convince the people you've defeated to vote for you to have what they wanted. And that, like, that's, as long as they have that core principle, the rest of it, they're just fiddling around with stuff. And I mean, this season more than, like you said, they came back, you know, after a break and they were just like, here we are, you know, drop the four. It's one. We're starting again. <laughs> Jeff's talking to the camera. There's like all sorts mm-hmm. of things going on. I liked it. I didn't like all the things they did, but I liked that they did them. That's that. That's the thing that I love. I, I like, like there were a couple of things that, felt like missteps to me. Like, mm-hmm. like I feel there are two, like the advantages aren't quite balanced yet and there are certain other parts. I didn't love every discussion of, you know, 41 seasons in and Jeff looks at the camera and says, now this is a tribal council and here's how it works. And I'm like, we've got it, Jeff. This is even episode four of this season. So we've seen this happen. But um, I did like that they, they do these missteps. Like they've had before, you know, they brought in quite a complex coin economy and then were like, actually, that's not quite working and got rid of it. They've had, you know, an island where people who get voted off go to. I, I find it interesting that they're not afraid to make big leaps and, and even big mistakes. And one of the interesting things about the players that you get now, particularly in this season, is that they have also grown up watching Survivor in a way that like you don't see much in TV shows. You see it a lot in like, Sports, you see like, you know, this player's dad was part of the league or this person, you know, grew up always watching these greats. Survivor is getting that kind of sporting lore to it where players like, I want to be like Aussie. Or in this season, we had one person who had built one of the puzzles at home. So when she got to the chance, like when they, because they reuse from a big like a collection of puzzles. They reuse a certain number of them. And when it came up, she finished it about three seconds flat and then revealed to Jeff, which I felt was a tactical error, but revealed to Jeff, oh yeah, I built one of those at home. Like it's interesting how the players are growing with the game as well. Even what they consider to be what you need at the end of it. Because these days mm-hmm. you, you need to have what they call a resume, right? right? Which is basically... I'm going to say to the jury, here are the things that I did to influence the game and to to get you here. But there's no, again, it's not like, you know, you've got a bag of tokens you can collect and they, like people value things in different ways and they see things from different perspectives. So there's very much like this, you know, incredible, I, I it's funny. So when Survivor first started, one of my first stand-up jokes, like, I, I didn't know how much I was going to love Survivor at the time, but like it was quite an original observation at the time. But uh, I'm reminded of it all the time when I watch Survivor, which is I had this joke about how I watch Survivor, but it annoys me at the end where they're voting for somebody and they're voting them out and people spell their name differently. They don't have the correct spelling of their name. And the joke was, the premise was, although I guess it's pretty hard when you're out there on the island to be like, so James... For no particular reason, how do you spell your name? No, just just asking. There's not an umlaut or something that I need to know about. I'm like, but that is still at the heart of the game to me. Is that idea of you're working alongside these people, you're having alliances with these people, but at any stage, there is this 
like assumption that you're going to have to betray these people. And what I found fascinating, probably my favourite moment of this entire season, was there were these two players, who like Ricard and Shan, and both mm. I, w- I think we'll, we'll, we'll see play Survivor again if they want to play Survivor again. Absolutely. They're very iconic characters and really good at playing the game and added a lot to it. And they for a while they were working in conjunction with each other. And you were watching this just going, well, this cannot last. And then at some stage, they just had a very out loud adult conversation about the idea of, look, we know what this is. And uh, (laughs) it was Pacino and De Niro in heat. They were just either side of the table being like, look, I'm going to have to take you down. Well, I'm going to have to take you down if it comes to it. But I also... I didn't mind that because I think there's something we can actually learn about that sometimes, which is that, you know, it is just a game. And like the fact that they both knew that they were playing a game. I think about this a lot with sports. I love sports and I know you do very much as well. And, but I do also think that sometimes our worst impulses when it comes to sports are around when we forget that it's a game. And I think that you can still play the game super hard and then at the end acknowledged, well, that was a good game. Like, you know, when we're recording this, yeah. we just watched the end of the the fourth test match, Ashes test match. And that final day, there was no less drama in that final day because of the fact that it was played in a friendly spirit. It was still played super competitively. Mm. Both teams, like England desperately wanted to hold on for pride. There was a lot on the line. The Australians were pretty desperate to win. They were trying pretty hard. The fact that they all kind of shook hands and had a laugh and congratulated each other at the end, it for me took nothing away from that experience. In fact, it was the opposite. I was like, yes, you can play super hard against each other and then go, isn't that great? I wouldn't have got to play this super hard if there wasn't this opponent who was willing to challenge me to you know, lift to this level and excel. And now at the end of it, we can enjoy that we were both part of making this happen. And Shan and Ricard had that moment in this game that so often mm. you just wish that people would have with each other. Because, you know, when there's two people Absolutely. working together and you know at some stage they're going to destroy each other and then this beautiful friendship, they'll hate each other forever. If they'd just gone, look, hey, we'll be cool after this, but it's me or you. So is it me or you? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I really like about, like, um, of course, basketball is my sport of choice. And you get that, like, these these players have been competitive, competitively playing against each other since they were about 8 to 12 years old. That's usually when, like, they start meeting each other in tournaments and things. So by the time you get to the pros, and particularly with pro leagues in any sport now being, like, players move from team to team to team, the player empowerment era... Um, it's it's reminds me of that old Jerry Seinfeld thing about he's got a different shirt, so we have to boo him now because he's in a different shirt. Like no one involved in this hates each other because they all can respect the amount of dedication it took to get where you are and life took you this way. And that is something that again has like started to drift over into the survival world. That like you say, there is a respect for the game. Like there was one character in this season who I would say he had too much respect for the game. He was very much in the lore of the game more than he was necessarily good at playing it himself <laughs> when he was very obviously blindsided after very badly pooching <laughs> um, activity, like a challenge. It was like 
interesting to watch just the respect went, wow, I got played really well. Like, it was that kind of thing when you see a boxer be like, wow, you just kicked my ass. Like, well done. But also, the person who won the game this year, like, played a a style of game that has now come to be acknowledged as a style of game, like, which is a very sort of, like, lower impact, behind the scenes, like, you know... um, like clever, well-constructed, but like not a flashy game, not somebody who was sitting there going, I know every move that's ever been played or I'm going to make all these, you know, huge moves in order to like, you know, have this, like played a very different style. And the fact that the thing I've always loved about Australian rules football is that less and less so as the years go on, but particularly back in the day, like I remember somebody telling this story of like, you know, if you walked into the NFL and you like, who's the best player in the NFL and they showed you a picture of Tom Brady, you'd be like, yeah, okay, that looks like the best player. in Like that looks like a, a yeah. champion sports person. And you went, who's the best player in the history of the AFL? They'd show you Lee Matthews, who's this like tubby bloke with like a mustache <laughs> punching people. And you're like, yeah, he's the best guy who ever played the game. And it used to be, in particular, a game where you could be like, you know, 200 centimetres tall or like, you know, really short. It still is to a certain extent. Like, there is still room for a different skill set. And one of the things I like about Survivor is there is no one way to win it. You can come in with very different game styles and and see what happens. And if you were to, let's say we're planning the 42nd mm. season of Survivor right now, are there changes that you as a fan would like to see happen to the game or something you'd like to introduce or take away? Uh, I mean, I, okay, I, I will say this. Like, I was a bit on, um, so there was a, a particular advantage in this season, which was uh, the turn back time advantage, which was actually a, an advantage that the eventual winner, like, got a great advantage from. So, and, I don't know how I feel about that. So to explain yes. this, it was an hourglass of time, which she was left on an island with. And if she used the shillelagh of time to break the hourglass of time, it was very Tolkien. <laughs> you can break the hourglass of time and that would reverse the previous very consequential uh, result of the last game. And then you would get to redo and basically flip the game. All the powerful people were then the losers. The losers had had risen from the bottom. Yeah, and but it was at a very pivotal part of the game, which is the merge. So the merge is this, mm. for people who don't follow Survivor, but the merge is if you make the merge of the tribes, it is a like a key point in the game as a marker of like what your Survivor journey has been like. People want to make the merge. That's your sort of first real goal to get to and it comes with the reward of a feast and then it becomes you know less a tribal game and more an individual and alliance game from that so the game changes at that point and so one team had won and got the reward feast and you know been told basically you you are now like you know in this part of the game and then uh, erica had the opportunity on the island to with an hourglass which again there was a few confused metaphors i think with the the prop department <laughs> because if you've got an hourglass you can just turn it up the other way to reverse time would be you don't need to smash it i don't know why there was a hammer but the idea was that in that moment i the thing i do like about survivor is normally if you are told that something is going to happen it happens that that there mm-hmm. isn't that idea of that hang on you thought that you had you had your feast, like you've been told that you've made this part of the game and then suddenly somebody's got this like, you know, magic thing and they've turned back time and you're not safe and you're not in this part of the game anymore. I didn't love that. Like I like 
the fun of the twist and like, you know, the fun of the game of it. But in the essence of the game, I really do like when what Jeff says is true, that they can trust that. And I much more love, you know, than the alliances and the gameplay and the idea of when do you get this person out and what do you need to do to, you know, have allies there? How far do you want to go in the game? How far do you take someone who is a stronger player than you as a shield versus the risk that they will still be there at the end and beat you when it comes to the, I mean, that's when it gets fascinating to me. So I don't need that really big move that is like, oh, here's a secret magic potion version of it. I, I like the idea that everybody knows, you know, like what the rules of the game are and you play those rules and then, you know, then the consequences come from that. I think that's true, like, to even the audience experience that Survivor always had this quiet confidence where we know everything. Like, there are going to be surprises for the cast or surprises amongst Mm. each other, but we as the audience know everything that's about to happen. And part of the joy of the show is you see someone get an idol and they don't tell anyone around them, so no one else knows until they pull it out at a tribal council or they don't pull it out at a tribal council and you have what is now infamous to go home with an idol in your pocket. Like all of these things where we know the drama. It actually reminded me a lot of, there was an article about the writing of Succession, which was that um, they hated any time a script was reliant on a um, cliffhanger or like reveal, it was because they had they're trying to cheat. They try to like have something show up at the end that fixes things where instead it's more interesting to give all your characters, all the information at the start, let the audience know everything they know and then have it play out in front of them. And it feels like that, that it kind of like lost a little bit of that confidence in trying to have these big, big moments because she was also like Erica, when she was given this, this magical hourglass was against the wall. There was no option to not break it. It's like your two choices are either you could lose or you could press the magic button that makes everything fantastic. Which would you like to do? And that is my only, like, I mean, I think she played a really great game and she deserved to win probably in the end because she just came home strong. But my argument would be in my perfect survivor world, she wouldn't have been there. In my perfect survival yeah. world, she would have been eliminated in that episode because that was what was going to happen. And then a magic wand came along and gave her the opportunity to not get eliminated. And then, so that to me is, I mean, she mightn't have been, you know, you never know, but like most likely the way the show was going, she was getting yeah. eliminated that episode. And then they gave her a magic pass to not get eliminated that wasn't based on anything other than, in fact, it was based really on, like nothing that anyone had any information that they could affect. She didn't affect it. The other yeah. tribe members didn't affect it. Nobody knew that the decision they were making could lead to those circumstances. <laughs> it was actually like, it seemed like uh, it was the producer feeling bad because it was that you had had the worst time of everyone and now we're going to throw you on an abandoned island alone in the rain for two days. Look, let me make this up to you. That was way too harsh. Like it felt like that kind of. I'm so so sorry about what we did to you on the game of Survivor. Yeah, what if we could just make everything that like? I mean, if they really were going to reverse time, like again, these are little things, and who cares? But yeah. the other team had already had a feast, and then the new merged tribe didn't get a feast. In fact, I'd like to go the opposite. They really would have to like regurgitate the food that they ate. If we had, <laughs> that's what I would like to see. And then the other tribe should have got a feast, like the full reversal if you're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, Jeff, all right, drop your yeah. lunch. <laughs> <laughs> 
We might yep. wrap it up there. Thank you for joining me, Will. Thank you. Thank you very much, mate. was Will Anderson and when Question Everything Season 2 comes on board comes on board comes on board is on the telly check it out <laughs> I was going to talk about you know you can see what we've implemented and what we've changed and it's actually going to be a very exciting season and we're in the planning now but I got distracted by my own shockingly bad turn of phrase there comes on board yeah, yeah. All right, let's jump tracks. Uh, our next topic is something I actually didn't know that much about. And at this point, almost two and a half hours into this podcast, you might be thinking, James, you don't seem to know too much about anything. This is quite the buffoon festival. Quite the buffoon festival. What is going on? on no editing no editing we keep going we head down and we push through uh this topic was actually fascinating to me uh this we are going to talk about taylor swift re-releasing her album or re-recording her album taylor's version and it's a very interesting conversation to me for um how you market nostalgia why this became a phenomena uh, phenomenon even, no edits, we keep going, we head down and we push forward. Uh, but I want to bring on to talk about this, one of the biggest Taylor fans, Taylor stands that I know, uh, Guardian opinion editor, Bridie Jabor, who is both a massive Taylor fan, number one, someone who can actually talk to this from the perspective of someone who adores it, but also is a good cultural critic and has a good head on her shoulders when it comes to just why people actually do things. <laughs> and so I think this is an interesting conversation both about what makes Taylor Swift different from other artists who might not have been able to pull off such a thing. What makes this album special? Why is, why is this such a big thing? And... I think there's an interesting discussion in the broader sense to be had about how do we look back and how do we have that sold to us a lot of the time? And what I'm thinking about here is how often you see like a, a announcement in pedestrian saying that Aqua is doing a tour and it's going to sell out around the country because nostalgia tours are a thing. And we get into that a little bit, but I think it's just an interesting area of conversation. And it's my show and I get to decide if that's true. Sorry, that was too defensive, but it is my show and I get to decide. So I've decided that this is interesting and you have to deal with it. That's the intro Bridie wanted. As a serious writer, uh, author, mother of two, who is on here for her expertise as a cultural critic, she asked, can you please just put the dumbest bit you can think of as the lead into this, make it rambling, and add at least two or three stumbles that you refuse to correct. And I said, goes against my usual incredible professionalism, but we're going to try it out. So here is Bradley Jabal. Actually, here is me introducing Bradley Jabal, but you, you know how the show works. Just play the fucking interview. Thank you.
So one of the major cultural events that came up between the last episode and now is the release or re-release of Red, Taylor's version. Uh, I am not qualified to discuss this, but I brought in someone who is. Uh, Brady Jabor, you had a particular celebration for this album, right? Yes. I'm so happy to be here, James. You know, for years I've been trying to convince people I'm not a serious person. And they still invite me onto their news panel shows, their radio national radio broadcasts to talk about politics. And now I'm finally talking about what I'm really qualified <laughs> to commentate on, which is Taylor Swift and most recently the Red Release. So we did, we being a group of my friends and I who are all in our 30s and uh, Swifties, Taylor Swift fans, did an absolutely bonkers thing when read Taylor's version came out and had a red themed party where we went absolutely balls to the wall with it. It wasn't just, you know, we show up and listen to an album. We all dressed up. My friend had songbooks mm -hmm. printed with all the lyrics in them. <laughs> and we did sing-alongs to certain songs, in particular, All Too Well, the 10-minute version, which it was the night of a red moon. I think it's called a blood moon as well. And my friend, two of my mates, lined it up so we hit the crescendo of the 10-minute version of All Too Well when the blood moon slash red moon was at its fullest. That's how absolutely bonkers we went and were about it. Like a medieval druid festival. Like this is the kind of thing Stonehenge was built for, a listening party in the medieval times. Oh, we just went complete lunatic. We would have built a Stonehenge if we were allowed under COVID restrictions. <laughs> <laughs> to gather as many people so needed to move this album rocks. was being re-released it was kind of um taylor re-recording to take control over her own masters which uh had been taken away from her and like the kind of well that's like, her narrative her, that's her narrative yes but it's a pure business decision you know i i'm a swifty but i'm also like maybe a little bit too awake to the world and so i can look at taylor in with um clear eyes sometimes, not just purely as a fan. And it's purely a business decision. All those Swifties will be say it's about reclaiming rights and reclaiming her work, but it's just so she can make the maximum amount of millions of dollars possible when these songs are used in ads, movies, TV shows, whatever, streaming and services. You and I were joking a bit about this being uh, White Women Lemonade when it came out. <laughs> like, it's really a real cultural event. Like, what is it about this that made it, and about Taylor in general, that makes her music release a cultural event to the scale that, say, Adele appearing to a similar fan base, let's say, to some degree, does not, like, is beloved, but does not garner this level of, let's say, obsession and response. Yeah. Well, I think it's a couple of things. Um, one is that she truly is a gifted writer. She is a genius songwriter. Um, I think it would be very silly and stupid to argue that. And there are not very many, you know, well-respected critics in the world who would argue against that. You know, people in the New York Times would, would agree with yeah. that statement. She's incredibly gifted. Some of the lines that came out on Red, it's amazing on the re-release, it's amazing things that she came up with when she was like 21, 22. You know, for example, you kept me like a secret, I kept you like an oath. Incredible bit of songwriting that ended up on the cutting room floor. So we didn't hear that line oh, until this year, but okay. that that's how gifted she is. So one, she's an incredibly gifted songwriter and a lot of what she's gifted in is like specificity. You know, she 
She draws on specific details that end up speaking universally to a lot of people. And uh, another reason that she's so beloved to a fanatical level is um, she's our friend. She's my friend. <laughs> Taylor Swift is my friend and she understands me. And she makes me think that she is my friend and that she understands me. And if we met, we would have a lot in common by really engaging with her fans on a level that not many, if any, artists have ever done or have done since. She is on Tumblr. She gets in on in-jokes on Tumblr. There's a huge Swifty community on there. And that's probably where the really intense fan base grew years ago. And she will get in there and reply to people. She'll like posts. And she will post her own posts that reference things the community have come up with and conspiracy theories in the community and what they're talking about. So she's in this like constant conversation with her fans. And she also does it with things called Easter eggs. Now the Easter eggs and the clues and like she's held up as a genius in the fan community for all these little clues she put through stuff, her work. And what's really, really funny to me as, um, as a big fan who was also a bit too much of a grown-up is how dumb the games are. Like, they're really dumb clues. Like, they're really, really obvious things to figure out. Like, she first started in the footnotes of an album where she had the lyric booklet and then she would, like, put in capital letters certain letters or certain words and it would spell out a message. Like, you know, a 10-year-old could figure <laughs> that out. It's the Hardy Boys version it, of the White Album. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So the community, but she, that's a way of engaging with the fans. It makes the fans feel like they're in conversation with her and people think it's really clever. And it obviously is really clever because it has added to the mythology of her. And I think, you know, a, a comparable artist to Taylor that's come before her would maybe be Dolly Parton mm -hmm. in gifted songwriting, devoted fan base, um, breadth and depth of work. But even Dolly doesn't have that connection with her fans and what Taylor did. And it's a real like social, pop, like first pop star of the social media age as well, I guess, or who harnessed it in the way that she I has. think that's true. We actually uh, did uh, one of Taylor's earlier albums as a Gruen topic, which is, it's strange, in Gruen we'll talk about government advertising or we'll talk about any manner of controversial topics fearlessly but when we were taking on swift or when we were talking about bts we were clenched the whole way through of this could go very very badly for us but it was remarkable how she integrates all of these things both in a marketing sense but like you're saying with like unique fan connections or things that are really like plucking the audience out and giving them a specific experience to you. Like you say, she she builds a friendship out of this. And I, I liked what you were saying as well about like, I didn't realize how much of this was, you know, your version of the director's cut of Apocalypse Now, that all of a sudden there's all this amazing extra material that you're like, how was this never in the original thing? Oh, yeah. So one of her most famous songs is All Too Well, which was never a single. It was the fifth track on um, Red and it has become massive. Like, And it was because of the fans. The fans hooked onto it and loved it and spoke about it and wrote about it and played it. And so it's become a thing. Just like a random track on her album from less than a decade ago, it's this extraordinary song that if you're at a concert when it's played, it's almost like hearing Wonderwall. Like it's that level of excitement in the fans. And it was never even a single. And so it, this was incredibly clever marketing as well. It was originally 10 minutes long. And so part of the big 
push for the Red Taylor's version album and what made it such a big event was that she released the 10-minute version. Yeah, so it was like the director's cut. We got to hear all these extra lyrics and all these extra details that we hadn't heard before. And for anyone who doesn't know, this is the song that is just lighting up Jake Gyllenhaal, like by by all accounts, that like just setting him on fire. And that's another, another interesting part of her music from an outsider's perspective all the way through that seems to be actually weirdly has this in common with kind of late Kanye, which I know you're also uh, well qualified to speak on, which is that there's an element of like gossip magazine to it. Like you're not only like you're finding out about the lives of the rich and famous here as well. You're not just listening to a song. You're getting juicy details that you won't get reading blind items about exactly what went down in a celebrity relationship. Oh, yeah. And so that's going back to the specificity as well that she has in her songs she, these specific details that make it feel very universal and you can relate to it like, you know, feeling ignored by an older boyfriend as well. But the delicious gossip of knowing that Jake Gyllenhaal, you know, told her that if she was the same age as him, maybe it would have worked out differently, had a dinner party with his mates where he ignored her and she felt left out by all the older people. Like, yeah, it's just that's just plain delicious <laughs> gossip. Taylor both, like, is universalist, one of the, like biggest ass in the world for a very long time in a way that these like kind of acts often aren't or are like trading on a, a previous currency. Like let's say uh, Britney Spears is an example for it that like still has pop culture cachet, but doesn't seem to like, isn't putting out a new song on top of the charts, let's say. But like Taylor has that extended career. Yeah, well, I think maybe some uh, better examples would be like Lady Gaga and Katy Perry. And Lady Gaga is going on to a pretty glittering acting career, but her albums sell nowhere near what they sold at the beginning of her career. Katy Perry's album in released in 2020 or 2021, I always get those years mixed up for <laughs> obvious reasons, uh, just totally bombed because usually if you're a young female pop star, you are absolutely huge in your late teens and early mm. 20s and then you kind of peter out. People lose interest. So most people who are as big as what Taylor was in her early 20s, you keep putting out albums but fewer and fewer people buy them. You have less cachet. You still have your devoted fan base. Like, you know, Katy Perry is always going to be able to sell quite large concerts around the world, same with Lady Gaga, but they're not really building new fans or continuing to sell in the numbers they previously did. Taylor just keeps going number one after number one after number one at a time when she really should be fading yeah. a bit and seen as a bit passe. re-releasing an old album is that it's like the political culture has moved around as well, like in the time since its first release, that it feels like just the basic re-examination of the same theme she was talking about back then now have so much more weight behind them in a, she was done very dirty here. Like in, in even in the Gyllenhaal example, listening through that, you can imagine like 10 years ago, it comes across as what was the, the cliche Taylor Swift joke, which was like, it's always a song about an ex-boyfriend. It's always, you know, uh, she, she got her heart broken and also she was only one of the other big long-running jokes is she was only ever with them for like three yeah. months. Like these would be massive heartbreak songs about someone that she was going out with for like 12 weeks and with Jake it was three exactly. months. But, but what she released also, what our director's cut, you know, the original All Too Well is a bit 
sad and, and melancholy and she's obviously hurt and she's looking back on this relationship and it's all quite raw and she was she can't you know kind of can't believe that it didn't work out and she thinks that the other person is missing her and you know it's a it's a base it's a pretty basic sad love story the 10 minute version of all too well is so much angrier yeah. and you can see why some of it was cut because that wouldn't have been palatable 10 years ago for a young woman to be angry about this and it also brings up the age difference which 10 years ago I don't think anyone would have really cared about. But, you know, as you say, in the new political climate we're in, people do stand up, stand up and notice, yeah, it is like there is a power imbalance there when a 29-year-old famous actor guy goes out with a 20-year-old girl. And even if they weren't both famous and ultra-successful, in any situation there's just a natural, natural power imbalance there. Although the internet, as we all know, is a bit psycho about age gap relationships. <laughs> like probably takes it a bit too far in how much they abhor them. But yeah, and so that it was really like really clever and really interesting to watch that become a whole new conversation in 2021 that it just wouldn't have been when it was originally released and looking at those power dynamics. And also I think another reason that 10-minute version was so successful because even though it was written, um, you know, years ago when she was 22 or whatever, it still sounds like someone who's grown up enough to reflect back on that relationship. And I don't think that there's a woman really in the world, a heterosexual woman in the world or a woman who's had relationships with men who hasn't, who's not, you know, in their early 30s, now in their 30s and looks back and sees that maybe things were a little bit messed up in a relationship she had in her late teens, mid-teens, early 20s, not necessarily abuse or whatever, and I, I don't think that Jake was abusive, but just looking back on it and thinking, you know, I was more naive. I, I was the more vulnerable party and I thought that I was so smart and strong and knew what I was doing and actually maybe I was taking a bit advantage of. I think that's interesting because this does speak to an audience looking back. Like it, it's yeah. where we are now in our 30s, in our like millennials are in their 30s, early 40s and looking back at these things. And it seems like that's the part of like where where you know our addiction to nostalgia, the long nineties like continue forever fails is when it just tries to recreate like the magic from before. That won't happen. But when we critically examine what happened back then, it's gold. It's absolute like millennials cannot get enough of that, and it feels to me like. Uh, there was there was a piece about uh, Adele talking about her music that it wasn't appealing to like that she was asked about appealing to a younger generation and she would say like she didn't wish to do that because she's talking to people who are in her situation and it feels yeah. like this I'm I'm not sure how you feel about this in other cultural aspects but in comedy there's a very very strong feeling that you always need to be appealing to the youngest group in the market. Like uh, you can see like every comic pivoting to TikTok now because you want to be talking to the youngest people involved. Whereas it's almost like you're afraid of growing with your audience because the worst thing that could happen is you become stale. Exactly. Yeah. The worst thing to happen. I think that's almost in all pop culture or not just comedy. It's uh, it's in writing to a degree, but particularly in music where we think that the younger people are the cool ones mm. and that, you know, and I, there's a lot more interesting pop culture, including movies and television shows being made about the experience after 40 and after 50, but really there's nothing 
truly there's nothing that exciting that's been made for people after 30 since Sex of the City. Like there still is this this underlying feeling of like it's death after 30. No matter how much we say we're past that, no matter how much we say there's such a richness of experience over that. Like really when you think about it, so many like maybe curb your enthusiasm, we won't count that obviously, but everything that's like exciting and interesting is about people in their 20s and so so refreshing to hear Adele say she wants to appeal to people in her own experience because the other thing I think is like not to be disparaging of the 22-year-olds in my life, but they're really not that interesting. <laughs> like I, I don't know why they're held up as like the arbiters, especially teenagers as well, the arbiters of cool or the people who know what cool is because uh, they can be quite self-involved, speaking very, very broadly, and I definitely was at that age. And, yeah, just not that interesting. But I think the thing about Taylor, though, like Adele says she doesn't want to appeal to younger people and she probably doesn't. Taylor's still very much appealing to a younger audience. Like it's quite extraordinary to witness. Um, you know, one of my friends over in the UK has a high-powered job. She's in, I think she's almost 50 now, and she took her... 10 year old niece to a Taylor Swift concert and her niece absolutely lost her mind. It was the biggest gift she could have ever given her. She went to primary school and was like, I met Taylor Swift. And, you know, it still had this massive cultural cachet, which is very interesting to me. I posted on Instagram about my insanely bonkers red Taylor <laughs> Swift party that I went to with a bunch of other 30 somethings. And um, a journalist friend of mine tagged her teenage daughter, like her 14 year old daughter under the photo and said something that you would like. So she is transcending all of that. And I think she does still want to appeal to a younger audience. And it probably is still a big part of her ongoing success as well. Like all us millennials in our mid thirties are holding onto her tightly and she's our friend. But I think that she's also the friend still of 10 year olds and 14-year-olds and people who might not have even been alive when she released her first album, which is why. I wonder how much that speaks to the idea of, like, we hear a lot of, um, particularly Zuma culture, what you want is authenticity. And what she offers is authenticity, even if it's very well-marketed authenticity, it's authenticity. Whereas programs that seem to fail is because, like we say, it takes you until about your mid-30s if you're lucky, probably late 30s, early 40s before you get into a decision-making position anywhere else in the arts. And at that point, <laughs> you're trying to make a here's what young people's lives show or or whatever, it's a lie. <laughs> you are immediately in a position where <laughs> you're trying to fake what the youth care about. And like, I, I have to remind myself, any time someone a decade older than me tried to use any millennial slang when we were like coming up, any slang and how it sounded, and be like, you don't know that this is what you sound like, but it's what you sound like and you can't help it. You just have to avoid it altogether. <laughs> it's really interesting that her authenticity, that she's she's definitely thought of that way, but it is such a carefully curated, strategic marketing strategy basically like that's what it is it's not real authenticity like I don't think there's much that we know about what the real Taylor in inverted commas mm -hmm. thinks or feels but yeah people still still believe it and as you said Zoomers love authenticity and are very good at seeing straight through inauthentic things especially on social media and online and they still connect with her which is amazing because she is very very strategic and calculated in every move that she's making. Do you think there's any other artist, any other working artist that could do this reflection? Like I, for example, like we're talking about, like if I think if Kanye 
re-went over late registration, it would go off. Like, I, I wonder, like, how much, if there are other artists that could retrospectively go back. Like, something that's an interesting trend in music now is because uh, boomers still have the money, uh, a lot of the shows that are touring massive stadiums are things like the Pink Floyd Experience, where even if you don't have the real band, you have the music that you remember and you have the concert set up and you can farm that kind of nostalgia. This is like you she's opened the door to artists dipping into the well before, you know, the drummer and bassist and second bassist all die and you can't actually launch a tour. I think that um, it wouldn't work for that that many people. And also her re-releasing this music, most of the songs sound exactly the way they sounded on the last album. It really is just a business decision for her so that whenever those songs are used in, you know, TV or ads or whatever or streaming, she's still getting the money. But, um, you know, if Kanye went back and revisited something like My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy and did it with, you, you know, I really think that's the height of his powers as, as a producer as well, um, as a rapper and writer and all that, if he did it with that same level of production genius that he had back then and it's been developed to now, I think that people would be super into it. But there's not very many artists that could do it really. Like I don't like Madonna, I think if she went back re-releasing stuff, it wouldn't work. Yeah, that's fair. Like people, people wouldn't be as into it. I think they have to feel like they've got a personal connection with the artist or you have to be do, doing something really interesting with it, which I think someone like Kanye could obviously pull off. As someone who, like, you've written multiple books that are very good at capturing, like, kind of the feeling of our time. Like, the it's my favourite thing about reading or writing is it does feel like you're hearing good gossip from friends. <laughs> like, you're having, you're having <laughs> a crack wizard. You're having a great chat with someone and you're enjoying what you're hearing. Like, have you noticed when trying to capture that voice or like the the general voice of once young people now maturing people let's say like us entering this new phase in all of our lives have you had to like change like how has that voice noticeably changed or do we stay the same but our circumstances shift oh that's a really good question um i think the voice that i write in and this isn't um the same as for every writer. The voice that I write in is just my voice. I think, and the, and you know it as one of my mates and I hear it from people who know me all the time when they read some of my work, they're like, this is just exactly you and your voice. And it's like being with you reading this. And so uh, I know that there is, you know, therefore people who don't know me can feel the real intimacy from it when they read it as well. But that's just what I do is there's no strategy there. I wish I was a strategic person because I would love to be rich, <laughs> but, but I'm not. Um, but I want, I think, yeah, I don't know how much it's changed, especially since a lot of my writing in my early twenties was reporting. Mm. So that's a very different right, uh, voice to what I used in my writing in my late twenties and early thirties. So I think I could, maybe one of the only things that's changed is when I know what to reveal and I know what to hold back where I probably was even more open in my early twenties. So it's a good thing that I wasn't publishing much personal writing back then. But, yeah, that's it. That, and uh, Taylor Swift has definitely gone the same way. Me and Taylor, yeah, we've gone the same <laughs> way now, right? In her 30s, she definitely holds back. She knows what to hold back more and what to reveal. And also that's added to her feeling like you've got a very intimate 
relationship it's with voice to also as well. I noticed in my own like um, development, like let's say as an artist in in italics, but like the um, this idea that particularly early on, like I know, especially in comedy world. I would make what I knew was a bad life choice because it's like, ah, oh, that's 10 minutes of material. Like, I think part of it's also like a confidence to be like, this doesn't own me. Like, I'm not, I'm not just what I put on this paper or what I say on this stage. So I can choose how I deliver this message to you, let's say. Yeah. And um, the other part of it, I guess, is like imagining revisiting your old work. Mm. I would mm-hmm. rather die than read my first book. Like I, and I still sometimes get messages about it and people enjoying it, but just kill me. Just, I'm just going to lay down the Prince's Highway and get run over by a truck if anyone ever asks me to revisit or have to read it out loud. So she obviously feels very comfortable with that because that must be another incredibly weird aspect going back to work that you did eight years ago. Insanely successful work that got nominated for Grammy Album of the Year and sold billions of copies. But still, there must be some sort of factor there that does cringe a bit. I can't believe I revealed that. I can't believe I worded it that way. And she didn't change those things. She has sung it mostly word for word. That is amazing, particularly because, like, you think so many successful bands hate their own own stuff, particularly like musicians who do have to revisit, like Oasis hates playing Wonderwall because they don't, they're sick of playing Wonderwall. It is about a marriage long ago, long in the past. Like they just don't want to revisit it. And, you know, now they're nowhere near each other. And it's from their second album too. Yeah, they're nowhere near each other, but you know that um, Noel sings it at his concerts Mm. now with his other band. So because he knows, because, you know, you might hate singing it, but you're not going to get any reaction from the audience to like, you know, the song on your latest yeah, exactly. album 20 years later or whatever. And I feel this like the you sent a cold chill down my spine because I have such like an aggressive hatred to my own old work that like I, I have the like there's a real advantage in television world where it's ephemeral. Like no one is checking like when you're doing weekly comedy shows, no one is checking like what was the news like in 2016 and what did you say in episode <laughs> 4 of this season of whatever? It's gone. It it disappeared. Oh yeah, they can't just or they can't order it on Booktopia exactly. or pick it up in a second hand shop randomly or get downloaded on Kindle. And other ones are just, you know, sitting in the bookshop and they're there. And I, like I, even like uh part of my back catalog as you know is a rugby league biography and it's very weird for me to have that there and it always feels like even though I like there are bits of it obviously you're proud of and you're proud of all your work and everything's a step to get where you are it also feels like you have that moment of oh Dickens doesn't have one of these in his collection (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think that Dickens would have done as good a job as you on the Sam Tidey biography I really could only think it could have been done that well by someone as funny as you and also with that huge knowledge of NRL, which Dickens just wouldn't He just have. didn't have it. It's, <laughs> look, he can stick to urchins. I'll stick to league. <laughs> uh, there is one question I am asking at the end of each interview uh, this episode, which is a lie because I've already forgotten it about three of them, but I'm going to throw <laughs> it at you here, which is how do you sleep at night? I get into my big bed with my lovely husband. <laughs> I lie down. Uh, this is very annoying, I know, particularly for people of our age, but I lie down oh, and close my eyes and go to sleep. You're not – because you – that's something, like, I think your superpower is you are maybe – you're the millennial that exists without anxiety. 
I am. I know. It's very, it's very obnoxious of me. And I usually, I don't go around telling everyone that, but yeah, I don't have, I never had anxiety. I had anxiety when I thought my son was dying in front of me. That was the only time. I, I feel anxiety. that's fair. As long as you're not <laughs> worried about calling triple zero because you don't want to make a phone call. I think. <laughs> no, actually I had to be told to call it both times because it's because I'm a nurse's daughter. It's so ingrained in my mind. It's only for emergencies. And, and I don't know, I still didn't think, I think my son's having a seizure and I think he's dying. And I'm like, still not emergency for a triple zero. <laughs> and I had to be told, ring triple zero. But uh, no, I don't have any anxiety. Like I wake up at 3 a.m. sometimes and think about, like I think everyone does that. Um, but it's usually if I get woken by one of my kids. I haven't slept through the night in a very long time. Yeah because I've got two kids. But, um, you know, they wake me up. Usually I go back to sleep. Sometimes I lie there for an hour. But, yeah, I just get into my big lovely bed with my lovely husband, <laughs> lie down, close my eyes and go All to right, sleep. Bro, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. What a delight. Was Bridie Jabour talking about Taylor Swift, Bridie's version. Now, before we move on, I have something a little bit special that we have to mention at this point. Sally, if you are listening to this, listening to it with Martin, he has a very important question for you. He wants to know if you would marry him. That's right. Now, I've made that up, but If there so happens to be someone listening named Sally with their partner, Martin, and they're on a car ride where Martin has forced them to listen to this, and they're three hours in, and that happens, we have just created a real moment in the car for them. (laughs) It's surely like a, even if they're a very stable relationship, even if they're bordering on proposal, be a real, this is how you chose to do it. Sorry, Martin, you got to get married now. Too bad. Too bad I decided for you. I think you two are great together. Unless you're not, in which case, Sally, get out of there. Sally, you can do so much better. Look, we've all been saying this. We didn't want to talk to you about it. But look, you're happy. And if you're happy, that's great. But you could do better. But I hope you two have a wonderful long life together. Unless you don't want to, Sally. There's still time. There is still time. Let's move on to our next interview interview is a bit different and I am so excited for it and I asked our interviewee how he would introduce himself and here is what he said. My name is Gerald Stratford and some people know me as the king of big veg. Gerald Stratford is the king of big veg. Now, I have written about this before for The Guardian, but it is my strong belief that big veg Twitter is the best and most wholesome place on earth. Now, big veg lives up to its title. This isn't a cool underground thing that you aren't understanding the code for. We are talking about vegetables that are very large vegetables. They are bigger than you feel they should be. Even when you say, oh, it grows very big cabbages, you will have an image in your mind of what a big cabbage looks like. You're wrong. It is much, much bigger. Go ahead and Google 
very big cabbage, particularly you, Martin, since you're clearly in the doghouse right now and sorry about that. Maybe you can distract by showing someone how big cabbage can get. Doesn't sound like a great plan to me, but you know, you're in this hole, mate. Not my problem. I want to talk to Gerald about how we grow. Did I get away with that metaphor? Because it was really about how we take our time with things and what it's like later in life to have your life entirely change. And I think it's a fun interview for that and an interesting interview and he's a fascinating man. But I also just want to go with the how we grow thing because it just sounded nice, didn't it? Just sound like something an actual podcast would do. Meanwhile, I'm trying to sell you a fucking scarecrow. Would you like to buy a scarecrow? If you're going to grow very big vegetables, I would recommend a deluxe scarecrow. See, I could sell a scarecrow. Get in contact with me if your business sucks or if you do sell scarecrows, which someone must do. Look it up for me. Send it to me. Don't send it to me. I don't want them. (laughs) Don't know why I signed myself up for that. No edits. We keep going forward. Uh, I'm very excited for this interview and I really hope you enjoy it. And if you skip this one, you're a piece of shit. That's not. I'm actually going to put the chapter mark just after I said that in case um, Gerald is listening and deserves a better introduction than that because he's a very lovely man who was giving up his boxing day to talk to me. So I've written about uh, yourself and Big Veg for The Guardian previously. I became myself obsessed with uh, Big Veg uh, because particularly it felt like in the last couple of years, this is one of the few very positive things on the internet. These are one of the few like lovely and wholesome gatherings. How does it feel to be king of maybe the last nice place on the internet? Oh, it's been an incredibly hectic two years um, because this none of what's happened to me has been planned. Mm-hmm. Though... The last few months, I've had to start working with what's happened. And I'm a very positive person. And if I can make somebody feel better or happier, even for one minute, I'm happy with that. You know, and with the gardening, you know, I'm convinced for myself um when you're doing something with the soil or you're in the greenhouse all your worries are behind you for a few minutes you know like this morning in sleepy old england it's been pouring with rain for the last 24 hours it's wet it's a bit of fog but just to walk up to the back garden and back makes me feel good You know, you've got some fresh oxygen in your lungs and you've seen one or two things still growing. And I think everybody can experience that, regardless of how small you've got, even if you've got a flat with just a balcony, 
if you've got one or two things growing you can get solace and enjoyment out of seeing what's happening I found uh, particularly during the pandemic times, I did have a little balcony where I was starting to grow things. And it was really the first time I engaged in this. And I wonder how much you have felt this in the garden, which is that particularly when the whole world became very slow, all of a sudden, we went from wanting to rush to everything to not being able to rush. This is a very beautiful way that we all, it felt like saw that, you have to take certain things slowly and that can produce something wonderful well i'm i've traveled a little bit and but in my heart i'm a countryman and whenever i have to go to a big city london or birmingham or manchester you know it's so nice just to get back home in your bubble and and I think, you know, with this pandemic, though it's a horrible thing, uh, I really think it is helping people to just question themselves and get them to slow down a little bit. You know, I think it's Mother Nature. Uh, you might laugh at this, but I think it's Mother Nature sort of just controlling us a little bit. You know, at times we think we're better than nature. But we're not. We're just a part of it. And mm -hmm. let's just embrace everybody and everything and work together. And how has it felt for you now that it's the whole world is peeking in on your back garden, that suddenly this place that, like you say, has been an incredible refuge for you and given you solace is now on display to the world? I don't mind at all because you know it's a pure thing it's just a natural british back garden and if people can look at my back garden or somebody can be in my back garden and enjoy it well i'm happy because when they're enjoying my back garden they're not worrying about other things it feels silly not to um dwell on this for just a second we talked very flippantly about big veg just as a term as we were coming through here but this might not be something that everyone is familiar with and of course your book big veg is a very great guide to it like i feel like just for anyone listening along we should mention they are very very big vegetables and i feel like i should ask you how like how does this come about that you aren't just uh, growing vegetables in general? You aren't just doing sustained garden. You're growing very large vegetables indeed. Well, first and foremost, I'm just a gardener. I've been a gardener all my life. But a big part of my life, other than gardening, is fishing. I loved fishing. And I've traveled and caught a lot of big fish. And when I, Elizabeth and myself moved up into the Cotswold six years ago um i thought i've done enough fishing i've got a lovely back garden it's a blank canvas let me see what i can do and i thought one day wonder if i can sort of do the same with my vegetables as i do with when i'm fishing when you fish you want to catch a fish that big 
uh, <laughs> and next time you go, you want to get one that big. And I thought, wonder if I could do the same with vegetables, just take them one step further. And mm -hmm. I investigated and I got, got the brain working. And you can, but you have to have the right seed. You can't just make any seed grow big, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's not a, a problem because, you know, I can't speak about the whole world, but in this country, there's lots of companies which sell vegetable seeds which will grow a little bit bigger, you know, with a bit of uh, TLC and skill. You can grow a meter-long carrot. I am thrilled to know this isn't a James and the Giant Peach situation <laughs> where I would one day stumble into my garden and there is a very, very big vegetable that I did not plan for. There is a fallacy that, you know, my big veg doesn't taste very nice. That's a nonsense. I'm growing my veg just as quick as somebody would grow their veg to a normal size. So my big cabbage or big carrot is tender and tasty. And perhaps <laughs> instead of sort of, you know, an offshoot is what I would like to see happen is instead of going to the supermarket to buy a bag of potatoes or a bag of carrots, you just go to the shop and buy one carrot. <laughs> You know, and with the space, you know, this little island of ours is getting built on from every corner and there's less and less space. And if, say, the farmers of this world could grow just as many carrots in a smaller area, it, you know, it'd be good. I love this idea because Australia, you might know, is where the land of the big thing. We have on roadsides, we have the big banana or the big prawn or various other things as giant sculptures by the side of the road. And I think we should be the land of the big vegetable as well that you want. You can go out and find the biggest cabbage possible. And as long as it's grown correctly, it's just as tasty. And do you do you eat much of your own? Like, is it you you will bring in a cabbage and then have cabbage soup for the next month? <laughs> a, a lot of my big veg, uh, Elizabeth, my partner, and myself, we make lots of pickles and chutneys and jams, etc. And that utilizes a lot. But apart from that, I've also got normal veg, if you like. And Liz only got to say you know, cabbage or carrot or whatever, and it's there, it's in the kitchen waiting for. <laughs> it's a beautiful service, particularly in pandemic times. You're you're much more self-sustaining than a lot of us. Well, we, we are virtually. You know, there comes a time like now where we might not have a tomato or a cucumber, but, you know, we've got a freezer full, two freezers full, actually, um, all my potatoes are in store in the garage, uh, parsnips, swedes, uh, Brussels, kale, they're all still growing outside, you know, so, you know, nothing is wasted. Mm. 
And and something else that that certainly shines through talking to you, but also following you online and things is that like your vegetables, none of this is artificial. Like you are, you are a very genuine person, even down to the positivity or times when you're not feeling so positive. Uh, that there is, a, it seems to be a, a certain um, realness that I feel like everyone is desperate to obtain, but so few people are able to embody. And you're very good at confidently being who you are, and that. There, there is a delightful freshness to that. Is, has that always been the case for you or did you have to come to this? Well, thank you for that. Um, I was so, so lucky when I left school, I become an apprentice. I was an apprentice butcher for five years and I had an incredible mentor. He was an ex-sergeant major in the army. And though he was a, a disciplinarian, he was also very fair. And over the next five years, that disciplined training become a friendship. And it really taught me so much about life from somebody who I think is like me now. If he was still alive, I think he would be me. And so he had a great influence on you from that point forward? Yes, yes. And I've never forgot that. I've never forgot that. And it's quite lovely now that I've, I feel like um, you yourself have embodied that role for a lot of people and and in a very different way as well. Like this must have been um, hard for you to adapt to even that I can't imagine the Twitter world was something that you were deeply embedded in five years ago. Oh, How, no. like... I'm, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not technically advanced. You know, Elizabeth is better than me, thank God. You know, and she helps. And, and <laughs> uh, I've got that. But I've also, my nephew, Stephen, he's, he's been a, a real rock because I only have to phone him with a problem and he sorts it, you know. You know, so that helps me with the computer, etc., and the iPhone and any problems. But I'm getting there all kicking and shouting. You know, I swear <laughs> my phone a lot. <laughs> we all do. I feel that's fair. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you have a similar relationship with Elizabeth as I do with my wife, which is uh, things don't get tweeted or put out unless she looks at it first. So if I get in trouble, at least we both know what's coming. We do everything together. I mean, Elizabeth has been quite ill this last few weeks. She had major surgery on her ankle uh, seven weeks ago. And so she's really struggled. Mm -hmm. And I've been head cook and bottle washer. But... You know, we're still there. You know, I spend time because she was bedridden. She's only just got up sort of yesterday and today mm -hmm. with the permission from the uh, doctor. Um, and we spend time every day having a chatter and sorting through with our phones to mm -hmm. make sure we haven't missed anything. And she's very good at correcting me if I'm not quite right. <laughs> You know, he tells me straight away, which is what I need. Mm -hmm. 
I'm very much the same, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you have gone from retired to now working again. Like you were saying, you have to work at this. You have produced a book. You have you have been in the New York Times. You were in the fashion pages of Gucci. <laughs> like how, this, this must be a very sort of ramping up again. Well, yes, it, it, it sort of evolved and I didn't expect it. But now it's happening, I'll embrace it because I'm that sort of person. You know, if I leave this world all kicking and shouting and, and getting the world kicking and shouting also, I'll do it. <laughs> you know? Is there anything that now, like you, you have done so much and this has been such a kind of amazing whirlwind tour. Is there anything that you would love to try still? I, all my vegetables, I, I grow not looking for world records or anything like that, personal bests. You know, if I have, say, a tomato, my biggest tomato is £3.12 ounces. Now, if I can get one next summer, £3.13 ounces, I've won. If I have um, my biggest cabbage, last summer was 36 kilograms which is just under 80 pounds you know we're a kilogram system here actually so i very much appreciate knowing the kilogram level so so if i can just get one a little little bit bigger i'm happy but i've always dreamt of growing a 10 pound onion oh and what is your current markup six pound four but to grow a 10 pound onion and beyond you have to have lots of heat it has to be grown in the greenhouse um you know i planted the seed four weeks ago in my greenhouse and it's quite a long process from november right through till till august stroke september you know, and so I've always got that dream. But I imagine the ten pound onion is like the 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 steroid era in professional baseball, and like these real yeah, pushing I, of human endurance levels. No, I don't. I won't use anything which is detriment, detrimental to anybody's health. Yeah, that's you know, fair. I'm not organic, but if something doesn't strike right with me, I won't use it. Mm -hmm. You know, I will investigate anything before I use it. Something that happens a lot in, I'm not sure if it's the same in your country, but in this country, particularly when we talk about effects of, of climate change and such, uh, the farmers are used and gardeners used much more as a pawn than as someone who is spoken to, particularly when it comes to like, they are the front line in a lot of cases in this country of people feeling genuine effects, but yeah. they are a political piece not someone who we're often trying to accommodate and in australia there are you can imagine a raft of problems floods bushfires we've had a literal mouse plague recently yeah, uh, so yeah. so like how do you feel about when it comes to these bigger topics of the state and health of the earth and as someone who works with the earth like do you do you worry about this i find at times that the amateur gardener is a is almost used as a guinea pig 
if we're allowed to. You know, uh, we're not allowed to buy certain chemicals anymore for spraying to kill certain insects, etc. Because we're classed as amateur. But if I'm a professional farmer growing acres and acres of the same thing, I can get whatever I want and spray it willy-nilly. Yeah. And I find that a little bit unfair. <laughs> yeah. Your problem is you're not doing enough damage. I'm as knowledgeable of my vegetables is anybody in the world. But because I'm not a professional farmer, I can't get some of the things. And I find that's not right. I would love to ask something that um, I'm asking across this episode is we're talking a bit about positivity. And I would love to know what are you looking forward to as part one and two, what are your tips for everyone else to stay hopeful? Whether it'll happen... You know, I mentioned, whoops, I mentioned my book. Mm -hmm. But I've always had a dream of doing a children's book to try and help children because today's children are tomorrow's adults. Mm -hmm. And if I can get children into growing things, it will be like me. It'll last forever. You know, my father gave me a packet of seeds when I was five. And that sowed the seeds in me. And it's lasted. And if if I can help the youngsters of this world, you know, I'd love to do that. And if anybody is just so busy, you know, they say, Gerald, I haven't got time to do gardening. You know, I'd like to say, well, just... Get one bucket and put some compost in it and plant a potato or one or two radish seeds and watch it every day growing. And just just give it a drink once a week and I'm sure it will help change their, their feeling, you know, because I think sometimes telling somebody who's not into gardening because of lots of reasons, you know, to dig your garden up and plant rows of this and fill the greenhouse up. I think it's too, it it could frighten them, Mm -hmm. you know, put them off. But if you could have one little box or a little bucket sort of by the back door or something where, they're walking past it every day. It might just trigger something in them because it's not rocket science. Man has been growing since time memorial. And the supermarkets has taken that away over the last mm-hmm. 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. And it just needs to kick it into gear again and bring it back. I think that's very lovely, and I'll have to give a packet of seeds to my daughter when she is ready to plant them and won't try and eat them. Yeah, just, just a radish, you know, in one bucket, you know, about 10 litres, put some compost in, buy something which is fast-growing, like a radish. Mm-hmm. And don't 
plant them too thick. Get her to stick her finger in a hole in the top, about like that, in the bucket, and drop one seed in. And then fill the hole in, a little bit of water. You can make your own watering can. How old is she? Well, she's currently four weeks, so this might this might take oh, some yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> when, she, when she gets to sort of four or five, you could get a milk carton, get a pin and make some holes in the top, fill it with water, and she'll have her own watering can. Oh, this is beautiful. We have an in-home play school host too, which really helps, so she'll be able to help her put these together. Within a week, those radish seeds will come up, and within four weeks, she'll be able to pull one up, give it to her mother to wash, and she'll be able to eat it. Ah, what a lovely thing to look forward to. Nice talking to you. That was His Highness himself, the king of Big Veg Twitter. Don't tell me I don't bring you the big interviews, because I bring you the big interviews about the big vegetable. No one else is talking about big vegetable. Unless they are. I haven't checked. Our next conversation, I really enjoy. And I don't know why I say that with such shock, because I really enjoy all of these, or they wouldn't be in the show. They would have been lost in the other five hours of unreleased Collie Project. Collie Problem. Put our head down and we keep going. Okay. Uh, our next interview is with an artist I adore, Montaigne. And I love Montaigne's work and her person because everything is so joyful and brilliant and loud and colourful and whatever it needs to be. And so this conversation was about how, as an artist, you find and work with joy because it feels like everything in this world loves to dramatize and celebrate the idea of a depressed, tormented artist. And let's not say that you can't be depressed or tormented. But this is about how when things are going okay, that's okay. And it doesn't make you worse at what you do. Which feels strange, but I think it is a real problem that sits with people. Will I still be good at this if I'm happy? Let's talk to someone who's pretty happy. Montaigne. So what I want to talk to you about today was the idea of positivity in art, that we can make art and be happy because it felt for so long, like for me in particular, that I would make poor life choices because it seemed to help comedy Like when you had a festival show to fill at the end of the year. And I feel like you're a great example of you're allowed to be happy and it won't negate your artistic output. Yeah, I mean... I think I used to feel similarly. I think part of it was just that I had gone through so many things that were quite difficult and I wanted to talk about them. So I was just really mm -hmm. 
committed to covering those things and uh there were lots of them so I didn't have space to talk about the happier things if there were any (laughs) and now that I am pretty well ensconced in my life and a very secure relationship and I don't know a sense of self-worth I yeah, in order to continue to make things, like I have to find other things that I want to write about, right? And art is, you know, I, I feel like all the different forms and mediums are different too, you know, comedy and songwriting and all that stuff. They do rely on different stakes, I think. Um, but songwriting specifically is, it can literally be anything. <laughs> like it, it, it's, it, it. I don't know. I think this is the other thing that I used to be hung up on is this idea of great art and the idea that, like, mm-hmm. if you're going to be an artist, you better be aspiring to make great art because then what's the point? But I actually think that's quite false and you can just be an artist who doesn't have grand ambitions and just wants to, like, creatively express themselves. <laughs> I think that is, like, perfectly lovely and I think also, you know, um, kind of a nice protest in the face of capitalism which wants you to like you know uh productivize or whatever or capitalize on everything you do and and i think it's nice to be able to just like make something that you like that is creative even if it because this this is the to tie back into you know positive and negative the Mm -hmm. the thought i've always had is like great art is always like immensely emotionally charged and like strikes pathos in people I think like it makes them feel that big sort of you know in your chest feeling and um I don't know like I I I don't think I I still kind of like covet the idea of like writing that kind of song like your Billie Eilish's and your Lords and stuff at least within the pop songwriting world who like have written emotional bangers (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to put it colloquially. Um, and, you know, it's of immense value to so many people, to me, and and they just are good. Like, they feel good, they sound good, and, you know, it's great. But also, like, I don't know, I think it's also possible to, like, make something great that is that has a positive tone to it, even if it isn't all positive either, right? Like, mm. yeah. I, th- I think there's also shades between those two things, right? It's not just like, oh, there's art that has positive uh, positive nature and then art that has a negative nature like um disco elysium is a video game that i love that is like incredibly dark and grim and the world is like in tatters a little bit but there are so many lovely elements to it um just really mm-hmm. funny and or like uh hopeful uh or encouraging and stuff and yeah it's the shades of all these things that um makes Art nice. <laughs> There's a few things I want to talk about there because I think that's a very interesting answer. And um, the first one is I, I absolutely share your feelings about the great art that I was always afraid to, particularly when it comes to book writing, I was always afraid to put anything out because I, I had like this coveted idea of, you know, an F. Scott Fitzgerald or Tolstoy style collection where everything you put out is a classic. But Honestly, not all, everything they put out is a classic, even in themselves. There's a lot of things that end up at the bottom of their waste paper yeah. basket. But there was, I think you're right. Like, there's this beautiful idea of like making stuff for the moment you're in and not trying to appeal to history all the time. Yeah. 
like uh, the thing I very much like about this show is that it is unmarketable. Like there is there is no chance we get merch and we go on a world tour with this. We can't do a five hour show yeah. in the opera house. But like I I think there's something really nice in foregoing that idea. And you know the thing that the classics were doing when they were put together is writing to their experience. And it just so happened that that experience resonated. And I think it's hard to get out of your own head of wanting to wanting to make something that's lasting in all time yeah. when you live in a specific moment. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's like that one reference everyone made when uh, COVID first started and we were all forced to isolate where it's like, oh, Shakespeare wrote fucking whatever and while he there was yeah. a play going on or whatever. And so I think, like, our culture very much encourages, at least in the West, I can't speak for anywhere else, like that works of art in any given moment be made great or at least that you produce them in some quantity measure and... uh Again, like, I don't think there are rules at all for creative expression because, you know, art, big A art or whatever, or even little A art, it's just like, it's such a loaded word, right? Like it, it's not just like output. It's also, yeah, all of the cultural and societal and, you know, commercial connotations around it. I think, again, when you just boil it down to it's, you know, bare essentials, it's literally, it's just creative work. And uh, there's no need for it to be any more than that, you know. It's mm. just something that the creator thinks is worthwhile to share with other people and hopefully will connect with other people based on that. I think, you know, the idea of, like, empathy and, and um, or, like, the goal of empathy with art is probably my favorite take on it where it's just like we make this in order to not feel so alone in order to feel connected to other people and help other people connect to us and I think you know that's all it has to be really great art as in you know the works that have transcended time have just connected with like more people right but at the end of the day if I make a song and one person like holds it really dear to their heart and no one else does that's still of value right you know Mm. I think that's an interesting idea because, you know, I was listening to George Saunders talk about this morning, they seem to talk about art as like uh, the authorship is sending a pebble into the water and you watch how the ripples interact with someone at the other side and decide when to drop your next pebble. And it's that kind of interaction. What am I doing and what emotional change can that produce in you? And I think that's what I love about a lot of your work is that particularly recently, it focuses not necessarily, there are very big concepts in there, but they're also the ones that we don't talk about but are fundamentally important. I'm thinking about like friendship, something as simple as friendship that doesn't get, weirdly, doesn't get a lot of great songs, even though it is the thing that we care about so, so much. Yeah. Um. Again, I think like there are probably a lot of, friendship-based songs, right, but you just don't really hear them, I think, because love is so much easier to sell en masse and that's the stuff that dominates airwaves or, you know, again, talking specifically about music um, and pop music and, you know, there's all this other music that exists in the world that isn't on the charts or isn't, you know, on your local billboard or whatever that if you're not actively looking for it or just, like, engaging with music on, like, a less or more than shallow level, then 
uh, you won't witness it. But it, yeah, it's definitely out there. It's something that a lot of people are concerned about. But I think, um, I don't know, I feel like, uh, yeah, love is just, again, it's got those big charged emotions that everyone feels yeah. or almost everyone feels. And friendship can have that, but it is... I think more of a stable thing often than like romantic love. I think people cherish friendship for the stability and for the almost the mundaneness of it, of just the knowing that that person's going to be there every other day to listen to you talk about like what happened last week or whatever, you know, and you know, that sort of relate that can still be fulfilled by a romantic partner, et cetera, like all these qualifications, but um yeah, there's just like less chance of, you know, all this other, all these other components of very intimate relationships messing those things up in a friendship. So, um, I'm just imagining a Bohemian Rhapsody where it's mama, just met a guy. We got on pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're playing chess with each other and uh, <laughs> I've got a new hobby and of community has been born around it. Um, Hence the choir coming in. Actually, I think this would be quite a good song. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, again, you can just, you can write about anything. It just mm. like... If if you write it in a way that's culturally relevant enough, it can get big. But yeah, you just have one has to make the decision whether or not they want to follow cultural relevance or if they want to do their own thing and follow and make their own strides, I guess. And something I love about your work and you in general is you are wonderfully you. You are yourself and you don't try to and not like uh, like uh, your thing is going to be, you know, I always think of that Marilyn Manson going door to door now to shock people. You don't have that element of it <laughs> of it's aggressively I'm not this. It's you just like what you like, you act the way you like to, you make things that appeal to you. Is that a difficult hump, particularly early on, to get over of making something that you like, not necessarily that you think or guarantee you know the marketing side will like or that an audience will necessarily like even though you have now found your own yeah uh I think I dither between the two often I I, I think I've come to now a place that's a bit more certain about you know who I am what I want to make and stuff but I think you know in the last like eight years of my career, I've definitely swung between like, I am uh, doggedly pursuing exactly what I want to do without uh, any thought of the market. And then the other side of like, I could game the market if I really wanted to. (laughs) Um, And, you know, now I'm, you know, doing music full time now and Hmm. I don't make a killing, but I make enough to pay rent and be happy. Um, and I've decided that that is enough for me (laughs) actually. And I don't need to game the market and I don't need to be ultra huge. And I think would actually be incredibly stressful to become a very famous singer songwriter. Um, and so, yeah, nowadays I feel a little less of the pressure from, you know, label and, uh, audiences and, you know, Mm -hmm. all this and that. Um, streaming platforms, et cetera, to make things that are like playlistable or radio friendly or whatever. You know, I still do make music that is adjacent to that at least because I make pop music. Like that is my interest ultimately. But, um, you know, compared to when I was 18, I'm definitely more interested in, yeah, making the things that I, that reflect 
my brain, I suppose. Mm. I think it's interesting what you're saying as well about, you know, the life that you want to lead around it. Like I remember very early, like 15, 16, starting out in stand-up and one of the headliners taking me aside and let me know that like it was really practical life advice and it was to the degree of, well, you work out eventually that you're going to make about this much and it's okay because you can buy the cheaper six-pack of beer and it's fine and here are the things that you'll actually want in your life and everything else isn't a big deal. And it's that like, I feel that's something that particularly like – when you grew up quite poor, you're okay with staying that way. Yeah. Like you want to, you know, be comfortable, whatever. I'm not saying that it's not awful and a horrible show, but like the idea of you have to make money, you have to really win the capitalism mm. game kind of goes away. Cause you're like, I know how I can survive. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've, I've been in a worse spot than yeah, this. Yeah, I think fine. that's very much my perspective is I've definitely been in far, far, far worse spots than I am now, uh, you know, in childhood and in my adulthood. And so now I feel what I've got now is pretty great. <laughs> Um, And I don't necessarily, you know, the only thing that I aspire to now materially is like having a family home so I can, you know, raise children with my partner, Mm -hmm. basically, you know, and that would be nice. And the rest of it is a beautiful bonus. Um, But yeah, I think there is something to, you know, not, not coming from much means that there's not as far to fall, I guess, if you... I don't know, do fall in any way, but yeah, I don't know. Like, like you said, I, I I wouldn't say we were poor. Like my parents worked like three or four jobs between them to, for us to not, you know, as best as we can Mm. be poor. And I think like my parents also had, uh, or at least my mom had her parents support, you know, in and out sort of over time. It's a bit complex. There's a, you know, yeah, I'm, yeah. there's a lot that I'm not covering, but basically we weren't like, it wasn't a total, total slog, but it was like parents fighting about money fairly regularly kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. Yeah. So now that I'm where I'm at now, I'm very much like, cool. Like me and my partner don't fight about money. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I love that, you know, uh, uh, anyway, but yeah, just, I think, um, I don't know. I, it's just like, not, I, I feel like you grow up as a teenager being like, oh, the pinnacle of happiness or of worthwhileness is being famous and successful and, you know, mm-hmm. having a lot of money and whatever. And it's very much just like, because the machine of celebrity is there and constantly selling that to you all the time. Uh, but, yeah, and then you sort of grow out of that, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, uh, over time, or at least I did, and and eventually, especially I think if you are an artist who really just wants to express themselves in a way that feels authentic mm. and, and genuine, uh, you are like, oh, okay, here are the, like, material um what's the word like the material goals for me to make this feasible like me making art feasible mm-hmm. uh and then the rest we'll figure that out i feel it's like i'm lucky enough for better part of the last 10 years i have worked solely as a comedy writer and it's something i talk about a lot with another comedy writer beck shaw who you'll know mm-hmm. who um which is that like i 
grew up like particularly teen years and into uni doing multiple dish pig jobs. She was cleaning food courts <laughs> and we're both like, we know how to go back. To yeah, yeah, this yeah. all fell apart. Like it would be lovely if this train keeps yeah. running, but if it falls apart, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think like that's a nice thing to have in your back pocket to not be afraid of having a real job. Absolutely. I think also, you know, uh, I'm seeing this conversation more, maybe it's just because that's, you know, the social media circles that I run in or whatever, but the conversation about what is valuable work and, you know, mm. there are people who actually do like, say, cleaning jobs or other menial jobs like that and enjoy it. The problem is just that they don't get paid enough. Like, mm. that's the issue. And, you know, going back to uh, just a job that helps you, you know, have money to live uh, mm. isn't, yeah, no matter what that job is, no matter how, like, non-arty, you know, it is or whatever like it's still of value and it helps you survive it is just ultimately like the the uh question of money and and those jobs being uh i think under underpaying jobs mm. but yeah it can definitely oh man i like worked at a pizza store and a cafe and a bar like all at once and i must say that was too much like <laughs> I think um, just, you know, the different places, getting around, like different, like starting at 6 a.m. at the cafe, but then finishing later at the bar. And it's like, mm-hmm. I didn't stay at the bar. Like, to be honest, this was like very near to when, like, uh, again, I would be going into like backstory stuff that is like far too detailed to, <laughs> to cover here. But um, that, yeah, that. This is a five hour show, if you do. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but you know what I'm saying is, yeah, I could definitely go back, go back to doing something like that. I think again, like I would be, I'm very happy be able to do art full time, and you know it does. I think when you get to be paid, at least for me, what I do, I get a lot of free time. Like there's a lot of there's usually like a very intense period of things happening over like a few weeks, maybe a few months, and then by the same token, a very intense period of nothing happening. (laughs) Uh, And I just have to figure out what I want to do. And, you know, partly, you know, that is just like creative um, gestation or whatever. But uh, are you good in like those blank periods? Are you good with free time? I'm excellent with free time. I'm like, (laughs) I think I used to not be. And then I lived with this housemate who like, uh specialized in critical theory at university and she'd tell me how like productivity or like uh whenever I was like oh man I play video games for six hours today I feel like a piece of shit she'd be like you can just enjoy that you know like not all of your time has to be productive time it is actually like very good to get comfortable with learning how not to be productive because it's actually not a natural state of being. It's just something capitalism has forced us to uh, internalise. And I was like, you're right. (laughs) I can just play video games for six hours and not feel guilty about it. Uh, But that that being said, six hours couch time is pretty hectic. I'm I have I have enough, you know, hobbies and interests to cover full time eternally, quite frankly, and uh, <laughs> which is great. I understand some people do literally go crazy because they're just like, I don't know what I enjoy when I'm either not working or like not making food or eating or not hanging out mm-hmm. with friends or whatever. I fortunately am very. I have a lot of things I want to do when I'm by myself. <laughs> How was it for you, particularly when you're not coveting these? 
like these conventional path, let's say, to have fans and have people adore you? <laughs> like, is, is that a strange jump? It is a pretty strange job. Uh, I think it's very cool, right? Like, I think the ego and everyone wants that to happen and wants wants people to um, be excited about the work that they do. Um, and, you know, maybe even on a deeper, more psycho level about the person that they are, even though those people don't really receive, like, the truth of who I am at any given time. Um, you know, I, I qualify that by saying, like, I think I do offer, like, a genuine self on social media most of the time. Mm-hmm. I'm not really, like, a character performer. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like I haven't given enough thought to it necessarily. I think I often really appreciate it, sometimes fear it, just because I think some people are a bit funny. Like, they, they just yeah. don't really understand the boundaries. And, you know, it's not necessarily their fault because I think, again, with social media and just the way that celebrities presented to them, it does feel like uh, people with fame or celebrity should just uh, be accessible to them at all times um, mm-hmm. and in all sorts of weird fetishized ways. Uh, but, you know, I think, again, like, I'm not actually – big enough to cop like the worst of it i think i mostly just have like a really lovely contingent of fans who understand boundaries and appreciate my work deeply and uh and in in a way that is very you know thoughtful so i'm pretty lucky and i think you're right that you're you're very genuine on like on social media and in your work and such but um is it difficult to find like the line or does it come natural to you to say like this is for the world and this is just for us um it's kind of a complicated question for me because i think it's never been difficult to find the line for me but the line has shifted over time like Mm -hmm. i think at the beginning of my career i was very much like my life story is free game Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I prevent, uh, present a lot of that in music and I've, you know, said enough about it in social media and interviews and stuff like that. Uh, nowadays, I'm a bit less, I, I still want to relate, you know, personally, personal stories and creative stories to people. I think that's fairly important to me and it's just a part of my process of my work and, again, like a, form of sharing that I want to engage in with other people. Uh, But at the same time, I think I'm like learning that there are some things that I want to keep for me, not even a should anymore. It's just like, oh, actually, I don't have to tell people about this. Like, and not telling them, like, I can just tell my friends basically. (laughs) And that's actually quite nice to just have things that are just me and my friends and my partner. And that's the people who know. about these things but yeah i've never felt though i've never felt um uncomfortable i think with revealing any part of myself because i'm an oversharer (laughs) by nature and uh it's actually something i'm trying to work on i think i i should overshare i think oversharing can be a bad thing i feel this has been this has been quite a common story when i've talk to people, particularly in artistic fields, who you start off naturally mining your life story. And if it goes well, Mm -hmm. you then have to 
pull the brakes a little bit on that and say, you know what, I don't want to specifically work from this anymore, yeah. or I want to try out a different thing or show a different uh, skill that I mm -hmm. have, or even just like we say, change the barrier, move the line of where I share. Like, I think it's hard, but it also seems to be a kind of confidence game in like, what I I'm I have the skill to make something. I have the confidence to invent something or talk about something different. Whereas like I feel the same in comedy for like ten years all I would do was here's a list of bad things that happened to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then eventually you've built yourself up as E or and you have to be like, no no no, I've I've got to find life. Yeah. I mean again, like I don't I don't think there's actually anything wrong with relating to the negatives relating the negative stuff to other people because again i think there's mm -hmm. like a solidarity in it everyone's gone through shit and it's nice to know other people have gone through shit as well and come out the other side of it um yeah i do i remember someone interviewed me years ago and it was the first time this question had ever been asked of me and it really made me stop and think and they were like do you find that writing songs that recount like traumatic experiences or you know negative experiences keep you in those experiences having to perform them over and over again and I was like oh shit <laughs> I've never thought about I've never thought about that like that's a good question I should have asked <laughs> I mean what you just said was kind of adjacent right and that's what made me think of it but I was like maybe you're right though I, th I think you're possibly right because I don't know when I go on stage, I'm definitely like not necessarily reliving it. I'm not having like a flashback on stage and all that, but I am mm -hmm. feeling the emotion of it. Um, and so I think if you have moved on from a thing and it is nice to be able to find new material that is not the thing anymore. So you don't have to relitigate it to yourself all the time and, you know, stay mired and in what is essentially a past self. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Cause I was just thinking from um, speaking to Miranda about the acting world and particularly when she was starting out, there were a lot of plays and things where um, particularly you can imagine what the Australian landscape is like, particularly where you're starting out a lot of stories about, massacres of first nations people or really horrific events occurring mm. and having to relive that night in night out night in night out and i think the theater world is getting better but still not great at making sure there's counseling and training and like uh she often talks about the most important thing you learn in acting school is how to turn that part of the world off how to not take that home with you when you have to relive it every mm -hmm. night it feels like Music I hadn't thought about before, but it very much in the same way, like you're saying, keeps you in that world, but also feels like you can often get there without that kind of training because we don't think about that element. Like when you're thinking about the technical side of music, you don't think about the fact of having to perform something that's in this moment of your life again and again and again. Think for any live performance in general, it's hard to leave the feeling behind. And it must be very hard as well when, like we, we talked about elsewhere in this episode, uh, the idea that when a song goes really well, you have to repeat it for the next 30 or 40 years yeah. all going well. Like that must be a very interesting area. I think I have uh, reached a point in my relationship to my emotions where 
I feel like I can move between the states pretty readily just because I know that's how emotions work, right? Like I know that one Mm -hmm. moment I'll be feeling a thing and then literally in the next second I'll feel another thing and then I might go back to the first thing or I might never ever or, you know, like I, I know that getting on stage feeling something there is a moment and then when I get off stage maybe it stays a bit but tomorrow it'll be gone you know like I think I've Mm -hmm. sort of reckoned with that a little bit and so you know I I also um that I I take a kind of pleasure in like leaning into the current motion emotion right like if I on stage Mm -hmm. I'm feeling elated, then I'm like, cool, I feel elated right now. This is great. And I don't think about, like, the fact that maybe, you know, tomorrow I'm going to feel depresso, uh, and I probably will. <laughs> um, but then when I'm depresso, I'm like, great, I'm going to listen to The National and be as sad as I possibly can, and I love that. I love... You're a real wallower? Oh, I love, I love it. Yeah, I like, there's something... So um, weirdly gratifying about it. Maybe it's not healthy, but I don't know. I feel like a fairly emotionally agile person, so it can't be too bad. But um, yeah, no, I'm with you. I, this is a major argument in my household, which is that um, when I'm in a bad mood, all I want to do is, you know, like I said, listen to the Smith, listen to something that will make me feel worse. Yeah. And Rose, like, why do you want to do this when I'm feeling bad? I put on something happy to cheer myself up. I think up. it's similar with me and Pat. I'm definitely more like, let's go deeper into this. And Pat's more like, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to listen to the sad song when I'm feeling sad. And um, I don't know. I'm, you know, different strokes, different folks, I guess. But my coping mechanism has definitely always been like, take my feelings seriously. Take my sadness seriously when I'm feeling mm-hmm. sad be be sad uh and you know if something else if like music is going to augment the sadness then hell yeah I think because you know partly it's an augmentation but also it's like a beautification for me for me like adding music to the equation makes the thing more beautiful and so more tolerable um mm-hmm. but I don't know. That's also just how I've always worked. Like I've just always listened, default listen to music at any given moment in order to, you know, either tell me how I'm feeling or uh, like help me cope with how I'm feeling. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I mean, yeah, again, it's different for everyone, but I'm definitely an advocate for feeling your feelings and, and listening to the sad stuff while you're feeling them. How do you sleep at night? Um, pretty well, generally, I think. It takes me a minute to get to sleep. Uh, I get pretty busy brain before I go to sleep. How do you, how do you get in that minute? Do you have like a, this is my standard technique or this is what I think about to calm myself down? Um, I've gotten back into the habit of reading over the last like month. So now I will just read until I feel sleepy. And sometimes I will go to bed and I'm like, wow, I'm not sleeping. (laughs) Uh, And if I really feel like I'm not sleeping, like I can't wait it out, then I will play Slay the Spire on my phone. Uh, Wonderful game. Yeah. (laughs) Horrible horrible addiction of mine mine also. Uh, But, you know, that's not the usual. I think in summer it's Mm -hmm. happened a a bit more often just because I just really struggle with sleeping when it's hot and we don't have an air con mm-hmm. or anything. Um, 
there have been a couple of nights in summer this summer i i literally just haven't slept like mm. my ba- brain's been busy it's been too hot and uh i also have eczema so and at night time i just get super itchy and that's just like a monster combination for like insomnia yep. basically and i won't sleep until like 5 a.m then i'll sleep for like an hour and a half and then wake up again and like i don't know so that's but that's again rare otherwise like once i get to sleep i sleep pretty well and in fact i can just mm-hmm. keep on sleeping like unprompted i will just keep on sleeping well into into the afternoon or well, not into the afternoon i've never like allowed myself to sleep beyond 11 a.m and in fact uh <laughs> this is like related but um so waking up in the morning has been a bit of a thing for me where I struggle with it. And Pat wakes up at like 6.30 a.m. consistently every single morning. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm iron deficient because I'm vegan. And I got a blood test done a month ago and I talked to the doctor today and she was like, your bloods are perfect. Like your iron is higher than it was last time and last time you got an iron infusion and I don't take supplements. She was like, your B12 is perfect. Like all your vitamin D, it's perfect. It's good. In fact, like the other stuff that we were worried about last time has somehow stabilized. So I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it, she said. (laughs) And I was like, okay, cool. I'm perfectly healthy, which probably means that my circadian rhythms are just absolutely fucked. And I just need to start waking up at the same time every morning. So I like, yeah, it's just having, not being nine to five means I can sort of wake up whenever I want to. And I think Mm -hmm. I have let that get away from me a little bit. And now I need to literally just put an alarm on for the same time every morning and make sure that's happening so that I don't feel so lethargic and fatigued when I get get up in the morning. But Are you a dreamer? Oh yeah. I'm a dreamer. I like, I'm a dreamer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh you know no i do i'm you know not every night but um yeah i i fairly frequently have dreams i would say yeah i'm not so this is a fascinating world yeah, right. to me so the idea of like the idea that some people in this world lie down on the pillow and then just essentially the way i see it is play virtual reality for seven yeah, right. hours and then wake up with six different stories that they lived is fascinating that's so to me. interesting that's great because every time i try to tell my dreams to pat he's like i don't want to hear about your dreams <laughs> and it makes me so sad anyway it's not i'm not that sad about it anyway um I actually read a book about this called Why We Dream and it's from this lady who just like got super obsessed with the idea of dreams and lucid dreaming and stuff and she researched all the science about it and um, mm-hmm. I, while reading the book, also got super obsessed with it just because I think, you know, the phenomenon of it is so fascinating and interesting and is like you say, it's just like, oh, you just experience a reality while unconscious, like while in your sleep and that's kind of, crazy and she said and i found this also to be true is the more you think about dreaming and if you wake up from a dream and immediately write it down or try to remember it like commit it to memory the more likely you are to have more dreams that you remember and the more likely if you keep doing that and you're regular with it maybe you keep a dream diary just the more you talk about think about dreaming the more likely you are also to like trigger lucid dreams and i was like that's that sounds like magic. Like it yeah. sounds like summoning a state of being where it's like the more you commit yourself to this thing, like the more, I mean, I guess it's kind of also just like, you know, growing a muscle, the more you exercise the muscle, the more the stronger the muscle gets. But 
I don't know. Dreaming is just such an abstract, weird thing that. Yeah, it's definitely got a matrix. Oh, absolutely. To it. But um, I love it. I think dreams are sick. Sometimes, you know, the uh, I had a dream two nights ago that my two new friends that I have recently made. They're a couple. I was sitting at the top of a bunk bed and they, there were two massive huntsman spiders and they would keep crawling on these friends. And for some reason, these friends were just like so happy to just pick them up with their bare hands and like throw them to the other side of the room. But the spiders would keep coming back. And even at one point they picked them up and like put the spider on like another friend's eye. And the other friend was like laughing and having a great time. I was like, what is happening? Anyway, I thought that was so – it was like – this is the this is the weird thing about dreams, right? In that dream, I wasn't freaked out. I was just fascinated. <laughs> like, in real life, I would be like, what the fuck is going on? But in dreams, like, yeah, these images can be presented to you and, like, your interpretation of them while in the dream can just, like, swing wildly between, like, dissonant and consonant. It's – yeah, it's weird. Anyway, I love them. <laughs> Montaigne, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. Nice chat. That was Montaigne. Um, I don't know if you can make this out in your headphones, but a massive rainstorm has started behind me, and it feels appropriate because our next conversation is about death. It's about death. Uh, we're talking about death. It's something that I plan to do one day, so I thought we may as well chat about it. Uh, I'm talking about this with one of my dearest friends, one of the funniest people I've ever known, D. Fidge. Our conversation started like this. Hey, I'm doing nothing. I'm just excited to have a chat. Also, how's yeah. my sound in terms of... Do I need? Do you to- sound great? All good to me? Is my so- appearance mirrored? I don't. I've never thought about it. No. Shit. <laughs> now, at this point, D has revealed a little box that says, James Colley is a little bitch. Does that mean it is? Does that mean it is? No, wait, because look. Wait. Oh, that is mirrored. <laughs> Did you do it both sides? <laughs> If you can't tell what is happening, Dee has turned the box around and revealed that she has mirror-written James Colley is a little bitch, just in case the image was reversed. And that is called Dedication to Your Craft. Yeah, because I didn't know. <laughs> so, I, um, that's, my, that's what I did sort of when I should have been rereading the obituary. This is a great chat. I love having Dee on. And stick around at the end because we also get some of our other guests this week to give their views on what they would like on their tombstone. Here is Dee Fidge. I want to bring in my friend Dee to have a cheery chat about death. So Dee, thank you for joining me. Um, The first thing I want to ask you is, what do you want on your tombstone? And I do not mean this as a threat. I love 
talking about death with my closest friends when I'm in isolation, firstly. So thank you for that. Um, I would like something funny. So I would definitely like a joke so that people walking past my grave stone might take a photo and then I can become viral. <laughs> kind of like the like um, Spike Milligan, I told you I was sick. The, the Like one of the best epitaphs yeah. to ever be written. Exactly, 100%. Or maybe like a gag where it's like, you know, the real the real epilogue is on the back of this tombstone and people turn around and there's a man there and pie in the face. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I don't know how I would coordinate the logistics of that, but like a, a wacky prank. I always thought I would love um, – now, this relies on the premise that at some point I become an NBA star, which I'm sure is still to happen. I've still got a few good years before my athletic prime. Uh, <laughs> I would want just a highlight reel. Like if you had that, if you were – if LeBron James dies – wouldn't you want like just a little video screen on your tombstone to be like, here's some of the shit I did? Oh, I love that. I love that. And with like deep faking and stuff, you don't have to be an oh. NBA star. You can just Photoshop your little face on people. <laughs> I can lie to future generations. Yeah, why not? Are you someone who who um like likes to wander around the cemetery? Do you like it's because I think there's two types of people. The people incredibly creeped out and scared of skeletons, and the people yes. who like to wander around and read all the dates and look at all the pictures. So what does it mean if I'm both? Oh, take me through it. Okay. So I think similarly to why I love scary movies so much, mm -hmm. it's like, ooh, ooh, like you love being spooked and you know, being reminded of death is obviously not fun, but it is a inevitable part of life. So I think sometimes when I am near a graveyard, I do wander around and have a look to just sort of make myself feel a bit uncomfortable. And also you do see some funny things like the Elvis Memorial yes. um, in the big one, which is obviously one must pay their respects at all times. <laughs> I'm like uh, super, super spooked. I don't know what it is about it, but like it's it's much more in my wife's culture, it's much more of a thing that on Christmas Eve or on big family occasions, people will go out and they set up deck chairs around the graveside of a family member. They'll have a drink. They'll talk about their memories of it. It's quite a nice thing. And it scares that. the hell out of me. And also like the second you like, crack open a cider in a grave i keep thinking like oh you've got to get in trouble for this surely this is not okay <laughs> you expect someone to pop up and be like that's not allowed yeah, exactly <laughs> i love that though it's a celebration it's really nice but then it's not my my family has no business doing anything of that sort our like one death ceremony let's say was when my um grandfather died this is when this is a very very pre 9-11 story it was the year 2000 for one but uh <laughs> we he wanted his he's from germany he wanted his ashes uh scattered and he wanted scattered in the harbor and he's because he had a quite romantic notion of like i'm going to swim back to germany and then i'll come back here and you know that was going to be his story and so my family just bought a ticket on the manly ferry and went to the front of it and just dropped the ashes off the front. And I don't know if you've been oh, on the Manly Ferry, quite windy. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure the back half of the ferry was just coated in pop. I love that. And, like, no one else signed up to be a part of this. <laughs> All the other people on the ferry are like, now I'm a part of this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. A few His, he actually had uh, one of the more entertaining uh 
faux pas filled funerals I have ever experienced in that um, he had a, it was very small, he's, you know, an immigrant man. He didn't know too many people in Australia. So it was, you know, only a couple of rows filled. And then about 12 uh, retired servicemen showed up in uniform, in formal dress. And it was very lovely. And they came up to my grandmother and said, um, we heard that Oscar served in World War II. And she said, yes, for the other side. And they went, oh, okay. And they sat in the back two rows, and about nine rows of daylight, and then the family. And then the oh, second wow. the ceremony ended, they went, okay, thank you, bye. At least they stayed. It was very nice of them, honestly. They could have, like, had a mini quiche after or something, though, to be a little bit less obvious. When it comes to, say, the eulogy, like, if if my whole life has been uh, micromanaging any kind of writing I can and uh, not being terrible at, as you've experienced firsthand, being terrible at letting anyone else take over a writing task when I could just overburden myself with it, it feels <laughs> weird to be, like, this final note, I don't get a say in. I want to be able to write it. A hundred percent. I think you would absolutely be wanting to write your own, James. You would, wouldn't you? Well, I guess that's everyone does. Like, everyone does because you want to be able to have the last word on, nah, I was actually great. Yeah, I was the best. I had, well, I guess people don't necessarily put in terrible things yeah. about you. What if you had two? What if, like, there was, like, um a good what version and then a bad version? Mm, mm. Like everyone gets two for the for the interests of honesty. Yeah. <laughs> Pure balance. Okay. We must always hear both sides. There's the good things. And here's why it's not a shame that they've died. Yeah, it turns into a public debate. <laughs> if you had the choice, if you were able to like Huckleberry Finn style, be a fly on the wall and attend your own funeral, would you mm. want to do it? Absolutely not. Really? Absolutely not, because I reckon no one would come and then I'd be really embarrassed. <laughs> and I feel like a, an, like a shameful ghost is like a really eerie presence that I don't want to be. Like a ghost should either be spooky or sad, maybe. Those are the two modes, right? Yeah, a socially awkward ghost is very odd. I reckon it would like it'd be stinky smell or something. People would be like, oh, what is that? It's shame, you know, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> I either want to be I want to be a spooky ghost. <laughs> Do you believe in ghosts? I think I think so. I think so. I mean, I like to think so. I don't know why. It makes no sense. Um I was raised like super religious and also I just loved watching like ghost stories and stuff as a kid. I always found them like really eerie. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's part of me that likes to believe in them, not for a spiritual sense, but in a spooky sense. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yours is not of the kind of like uh, our relatives are here and they're still keep. It's more of a get out of this house now. There's a Victorian child at the end of my bed rattling a chain. Like, <laughs> that's the kind of ghost that I want to believe in. My family, I'm, I'm not a believer in ghosts, but I like being spooked. And my family is much more of a ghost believer. And their, their story was always a child in a raincoat that used to haunt an old house of ours and threw a plate at my sister. Now, I'm about 80% sure I threw that plate, but I can't. <laughs> if the ghost is taking the blame for it, the ghost could have it. What colour raincoat did you have as a child? <laughs> I cannot divulge <laughs> that information. <laughs> this is now a cross-examination. Did you ever go on those um, 
ghost tours? Like, have you ever been on a ghost tour when you're in a new city or anything like that? I've always wanted to. I tried to take uh, Miranda on one and she flatly refused. Like, ghosts are not fun to her. Ghosts are not a joyful sure. time. And I I like the idea of them. I, I do have... <laughs> I once went on um, a ghost train in uh, in a Gosford... <laughs> In a, in a Gosford carnival and uh, I get on this train and you're you're there in the dark for about 30 seconds and then you hear like someone's feet going and then Rah! and I looked around and it's a guy in a golo mask with like a flashlight in his own face going oh my Rah! god like that and I laughed because it really wasn't particularly spooky <laughs> then the light goes off and you hear this and from a different angle, rah, same guy, same <laughs> face, same mask. And then we're on this on this ghost train for about three and a half minutes of just a guy coming at us from different angles until right at the end where they drive you up and just set off a car alarm in your face. What <laughs> the fuck? And then, and then the type... Topper of the whole thing is we leave and I say to the guy, there was one dude in there and he went, there's no guy in there. Uh, was that – they had no budget. No so budget. The Gosford Fair, <laughs> did it even exist? God, oh, my Tried God. Go and they're like, we've never had a fair here. Never was no fair. Why, the old ringmaster died 20 years ago this very night. Exactly. Do you know what, though? That's very similar to my ghost train experience, which is when I was about nine, I went on one. My dad took me to the Melbourne show. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to go in the ghost train with me because I was a coward or something. And <laughs> – so I went in there by myself and it was just the one train that went around. And very similar to you, there was a teenage boy in there just going, boo. But when he said boo, he accidentally hit me in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, ow. And then he said, sorry. And then I just like very sadly and morosely did the rest of the ghost train and came out and I was like half crying and dad's like, oh, it must have been really scary. And I was like, kind of. <laughs> It's very spooky. It's very spooky to be hit in the face by a stranger, I guess. Like, wasn't expecting that. Chilling. I want to bring you on to talk about this this very odd thing where a an obituary went viral, which for me feels like a blessing and a curse. Like, I, I can't imagine, as much as uh, yeah, I love attention, I don't want my obituary to go viral, particularly when... This seems to be punking on the person at least a bit. I think it is a little bit, but like, the first time I read it, I was shocked. Mm-hmm. I was like, what the hell? But then in the reread, I can see how lovely it is. Yeah, it's kind of loving, isn't it? And how it? much she would love it. Mm. Like, that's why it's written this way, right? Because you go, Renee would have loved this. Would you mind, would you read us a little extract from this? Of course. El Paso, Texas, a plus-sized Jewish lady redneck died in El Paso on Saturday. Of itself, hardly news, or good news if you're the type that subscribes to the notion that anybody not named you dying in El Paso is good news. Doesn't that sound like the start of just a tedious novel that got to about four in the New York Times bestseller and is one of these things that, like, oh, you know, it empathises with the South and it's a real J.D. Vance areas. Yeah, I think that's why when I first read it, which admittedly was a skim I was like this is just kind of weirdly written and kind of mean and I don't really get it yeah you Um, certainly owned that old dead lady 
Exactly, exactly. Especially like, you know, some of the language at the very start, you know, bawdy mm. and, you know, redneck in itself is never a term of endearment. Let's keep going, see how it goes. In which case, have I got news for you? The bawdy, fertile, redheaded matriarch of a sprawling Jewish Mexican redneck American family has kicked it. This was not good news to Renee Mandel Corrin's many surviving children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, many of whom she even knew and, in her own way, loved. (laughs) (laughs) There will be much mourning in the many glamorous locales she went bankrupt in. McKeesport, Renee's birthplace, and where she first fell in love with Ham and atheism. (laughs) Fayetteville and Kill Devil Hills, where Renee's dreams, credit rating, and marriage are all buried. And of course, Miami, Florida, where sorry, I'm laughing, where Renee's parents, uncles, aunts, and eternal hopes of all Miami Dolphins fans everywhere are all buried pretty deep. (laughs) I love that. The bankruptcies, um, Ham, falling in love with Ham, it really, you don't see much, Mm. uh, you don't see enough of in an obituary. The thing I really like about this, even from just that start, and it goes on for a while, but it really does. It tells this it tells the story of a life in the way that I don't think obituaries often do. Because when you have an obituary, like we were saying before, you're saying nice things about the person. You're not there to to roast them. That's the crematorium's job. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Uh, but, like you're. You're there to be like, they were thoughtful, they were kind, they were so loving, they were very, very sweet to all of their family, which doesn't tell you that much about a person because everyone's nice in the right circumstances, you would hope. This, like, even like the listing of here are your failures and here are the things that didn't work out and here are your vices. Yeah. That tells me so much about her. It does. And a lot of obituaries are kind of, even if they're not necessarily glowing with praise or compliments, they're just, a lot of them are really just factual. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's like this person was born here, then they went to school here, blah, blah. And it's, it's just facts. Mm. Whereas this one, it's definitely telling a story and it does not start chronologically anyway. Are you a big reader of obituaries? Do you enjoy reading an obituary? No, I get very sad. Really? Yes. Very sad. Maybe this is just that I'm very behind the eight ball, but I have found out about a lot of my favorite artists and writers from their obituaries. Like the, it's, it's, I know there's a thing online of like, um, oh, you're mourning a dead celebrity. They don't care about you. Firstly, they do. But secondly, like, I really like that because when I see like, Joan Dion, like everyone having such an emotional connection with her work. Then I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go watch the documentary about her. I'm going to read her work. And like, it's, you're late to it, but it's remarkable. And I felt the same with Daniel Johnson a while ago when like all these, like not necessarily mainstream or at least not to my mainstream artists who I find out about because a lot of people I care about and respect hold this as something fundamental to them. I love reading these things. Yeah, I, I, for a famous person, they're really interesting, I guess. So I love reading like famous oh, okay. people's obituaries and stuff because, yeah, same. I always learn. And then you feel kind of guilty. Yeah, You're like, absolutely. oh, I'm so sorry for not appreciating you in your time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's the ones where they are already celebrated before their death, right, like Betty White and everything, yes. which is great. Um, like I've recently discovered Alan Alda and, like, obviously I knew him, but I haven't mm-hmm. read his books before. 
and a friend of mine said, oh, he was trending on Twitter the other day and I thought he died. And I was like, no, he will never die. So <laughs> I think we should celebrate the people that we do have, like the famous older people while we can. I think you're right. I like was listening to Billy Connolly's audiobook, oh. and it's a beautiful story. And truly between him and Alan Alda are by like godfathers of wanting to get into comedy writing and yeah. hearing just he's, he's had a lot of health issues and hearing the years in his voice is heartbreaking to listen to, but it's it's exactly that same feel. It's the same feeling we've had about Betty White or David Attenborough forever, that yes. these people who have meant so much to you. It's, there's this strange idea of that we grieve things that haven't happened yet. Yeah. And I think that's like, it's so counterintuitive, but we do it all the time. We grieve things that won't happen. Yes. But don't you think that's why people are, well, a lot of people are hesitant to even hang around older people and don't like older people because it reminds them of death, of the inevitable decline. I have like a more healthy approach, which is I just assume at some point they'll put my brain in a robot and they'll be fine. Cool. What kind of robot will you be though? I think I'm going to be one of those stupid little droids that just sweeps up the floor. I was, do you know, I was about to say you're going to be a Roomba. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. The like celebrity ones are certainly a different tier. And I think yes. a lot about there is an Onion article that is one of my favorites. But do you remember how like in the classic days of The Onion, there would be for every 20 very, very funny stories, there would be one that just kicked you in the gut. Yeah. And this is one where your headline is 97-year-old dies unaware of being violin prodigy. It's retired post office branch manager Nancy Hollander, 97, died at her home of natural causes Tuesday after spending her life completely unaware that she was one of the most talented musicians of the past century and oh. possessed the untapped ability to become a world-class violin virtuoso. She's survived by two daughters, a son, six grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren, all of whom will forever remain oblivious to the national treasure Hollander would have become had she picked, just picked up a violin even once. Holy shit. The thing I love about this, this goes on and it's a really good read that I highly recommend to people. But the thing that really gets me about it is it is not about a woman leading a sad or even poor life. She is throughout it beloved by her family in a big family who adore her. Like it talks about, you know, the joy she has cooking for them and various other things like, and how much satisfaction she found in her work, how she was a loved member of her community. And it just keeps hitting that note of, but had she picked up a violin once, she would have played for the Pope. She would have toured the world. Like, I think that's what scares us more than anything that like the idea that the clock is running out and there might've been something you missed. Yes, 100%. I got goosebumps just listening to you read that because I'm highly sensitive. But, like, yes, it's exactly that. That's the fear, isn't it? Mm. It's not if it's not even necessarily, like, regretting what we've done. It's regretting what we haven't done. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Grieving the thing that hasn't happened. Like, yeah. It's the weird part for me. Like, this is such a – I even referenced it before, but, like, I always found it strange when I'm just getting to the age now where um, sports stars are younger than you. And when they're about your age, they're talking about, oh, they're past their prime. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, they're retiring. Exactly. And it's a real note of like, oh, like I was thinking the other day, I can't be a prodigy anymore in anything. There is no prodigy net. At, at most, you're just good at it. 
Yeah, I had that same thought recently when I was like, if I happen to get pregnant, I'm not going to be like, oh, but she's so young. <laughs> I'm 33. <laughs> no one will look at me being like, oh, who's that? Who's that teenage bride? <laughs> Absolutely not. It's definitely very, it's very strange when you realize that. Um, I don't know if you do this, but sometimes I will Google a celebrity's age. And if they're in like the 90s or like 95, I get really freaked out. Mm-hmm. So a friend of mine sent me an image of Doja Cat or something. That's how old I am. <laughs> and I was like, am I allowed to find her attractive? And so I had to Google and apparently yes. But no. <laughs> Well, it was a top. <laughs> something that I feel like a lot of people our age react to with, with kind of elbows up that millennials so, so much built their entire psyche on we are the youngest generation. And then another one has showed up. We're like, wait, what's this? What? What's going on? How is this possible? And I imagine every generation reacts angrily to the one underneath them. But usually it's um, the kids these days don't have any respect. And it's usually like you get a little bit older or they're your kids. It feels yes. like we're reacting to our youngest sibling with anger. And they are. They are. It is such as that next generation and we're kind of like, oh, we're not the youngest people at work anymore. We're not the youngest people doing this anymore. It's very strange. Maybe it's that the upward momentum isn't there. Like maybe, you know, you would think that for a lot of generations before us, by the time you get to about this stage, you're in a certain spot in your life that you're, you know, all things being like you're in some managerial position in a home with your family and you're growing in this way and then when you see a teenager on a razor scooter you're not feeling like you're in direct competition with them (laughs) whereas if we're going for the same entry level spot or whatever it does feel like you're being aged out of the market long before you got to enter it properly yeah now we're the ones on razor scooters (laughs) (laughs) are you someone who dwells on regrets like do you have a I wish I had done this this way, or are you very comfortable in a, it is what it is? What do you think, James? You know me. (laughs) I I was asking the open question so the audience could get to know you. I'm 100% aware of where this is going. All right. I'm incredibly neurotic. Um, So obviously, yes, I dwell on literally every single action that I've done, including like when I brought the the paper in this morning, did I look weird to my neighbours? Did I walk funny? Did I do a little shuffle? Um, So yeah, my, in many ways, my life is full of regret, but also it's fine. (laughs) I read this really interesting article actually in the Atlantic that talks about like healthy nihilism Mm -hmm. and how that often emerges during crisis or times of pandemic and that sort of thing. And it was really interesting sort of like leaning into the like nothing matters. So you need to just do what you want to do and not be so Mm self-conscious. I actually like that. Like I... I feel like massive crisis points are weirdly good for that. Like I very much hold, there was a time which you would be aware of that um, we were kind of horribly robbed, like about as robbed as you could be broken into the house, everything taken, stuff like that. And it was my job to fly back into the state, have the house boarded up, have the police come in, all of these different bits and pieces to just that you have to deal with when this happens. We have flood damage, all of this stuff. And having no choice but to just do that. And when it's on no one's shoulders but yours and you yeah. have to sort it out, it was a real like a like defining moment of you have to step up now because it's very easy for a very long time to be like, someone in charge will handle this. And the first yeah. time that doesn't happen and it's just on you, 
it's like it it is defining and it's it's weird to say that you become grateful for those moments but you almost do like that the things that force you to change are yeah. very valuable even when it's unpleasant that you have to change yeah exactly because it forces you it goes well what's important here what is mm. actually important in this situation and you kind of a mutual friend of ours kirsten was telling me about how she decided to move to melbourne after she had a horrible car accident which I didn't realize, but it was this very similar thing. She was like, well, I don't want to be living in this state anymore, so I want to go to Melbourne. Yeah, Um, yeah. It's that kind of thing where it's like, well, nothing's important, really. Like, what do I actually care about? Exactly, and it feels like, in a sense, the whole world is very slowly going through that all of a sudden. Exactly. We're all collectively in this sort of state of flux. Like we, you've probably heard about, you know, like people's marriages ending and people leaving their jobs being like, I don't want to do this anymore. This Mm. is not important. this is why I messaged you the other night telling you that maybe I want to get into stand-up comedy. Like, we're all real fucked at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> we're all at breaking point. <laughs> but that feels really interesting, though, as well. I think it's, like, a good spurring on because it's so easy to just go head down and continue on. Yeah. That to have these things that force you to reassess is really interesting to me. Like, and I think... I think, firstly, you'd be very, very good at stand-up comedy. But I think that, like, anything that makes us do this, this is why I get so interested in, to bring it back to the obituaries, why I love obituaries so much is because I always think about, like, you have your first line of your obituary, which is very, like, here is the main thing they did, and then here is the wealth of their life. This happens particularly with celebrities. that you will find and often like it's interesting when it's someone who like they are best known as the lead singer of this band from the 80s but actually here are the seven charities they work for they offered three books like you you realize that we get aside from our closest friends where we're along with the ride you really get the highlight reel of just about everyone else's life you get a moment or two and when you have to fill four paragraphs of it you really find the depths of their life as well and it's mainly work or family for an average mm. person, right? And those are the kind of like, it's almost like a weird resume of their life. And I think that's why I really like this obituary of this of this woman in Texas, because it's all the little bits in between. It's Absolutely. all the little mundane, well, not even mundane, but just talking about the certain things that she liked to bake, like getting specific, right? About she used mm-hmm. to get manicures and tell dirty jokes and go fishing on the pier. Like those mightn't have been particularly noteworthy to someone else if they were writing this, but to the people that loved her, they really wanted to paint a full picture. And I think that's where the love comes out of it for me, reading it. I, If I'm telling stories of my grandfather, for example, I want to talk about how he put far too much mustard on everything rather than, oh, he worked in the construction industry. Yes. It's those idiosyncrasies that tell you that you knew that person so well, and it actually paints so much more of a rich picture. And I feel this is where we're all getting to at this point in our own lives, which is like, it feels like for for me, and uh, I'm not sure if it's the same for you, particularly like in the arts in Australia, to get anywhere in it, you have to be so head down. This is all I care about. This is what I'm doing. My main priority is I'm a writer, I'm a stand-up, I'm an artist, I'm a painter, whatever your work is. It's that this is the major defining feature. And it's only in the last few years for me, but like you get to the point in your life where you're like, that's my job and yeah. it's good to care about your job and it's good to put in a lot of effort at your job, but it can't be your life. It's very, very worrying if it is your whole life. Yeah, if you have nothing outside of that. 
mm. that brings you joy. And if it's the only way that you define yourself, like, if, oh yeah, if your only question of yourself is I'm a writer, like then you're not really telling me much about yourself other than like, it'd be more useful to read your writing, I suppose. But like, but like, you're just saying, this is what I do all day physically. I sit in front of a computer. Yeah. And you're kind of setting yourself up to be disappointed if you're putting all your eggs in the one identity basket of mm. a of a job, particularly in the arts. If you're saying this is all I do is this, you're kind of setting yourself up to, to feel disappointed in yourself. D, something I am asking everyone in this episode when I remember to do it, which is not every interview. How do you sleep at night? Oh, poorly. Because of all my regrets. Are you someone who, like, you go through, here's the list of, like, okay, <laughs> here's the list of things that I need to persecute myself over before I can go to sleep? Yeah, that's what I like to think of as sleep hygiene. Mm -hmm. um, when doctor's like, have you done any of your sleep hygiene? And I'm like, yes. And I go through my list. It's like, yes, I've berated myself. <laughs> I ate my dinner in bed and now I'm lying in filth. <laughs> I stayed up until 4 a.m. watching Real Housewives of Atlanta. Um, yes, I'm doing all the things, doctor. I'm doing all the things. I will – I'm more likely to. I'm a big, like, lie in bed and go through regrets that person. But oh. I'm not a – I don't so much say like, what the hell was I doing at 11 o'clock this morning? How could I have said this? Or how could I say, enjoy the movie too to the person at the points, you know? I'm much more of a, okay, now let's go over that time you said something weird in year seven again. Like, oh. I'm much more of a, I don't know why it is, but much more of a like harsh over nostalgia. And I guess it's just the neural pathway is so well honed right now. Yeah. You're like, Oh, you want to feel bad about something? Here's something bad you did then. It's also because you cannot do anything about that one. Yes, that's if true. If you have a regret from earlier that day or something, you go, well, maybe I can action that somehow tomorrow mm. or I'll apologize to that person or I'll blah, blah, blah. You can't do anything about the stupid <laughs> thing that you said when you were in year seven and everyone thinks you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> and just before we go, for your epitaph, if you're signing off, if you're giving your own farewell to D, and please don't let this be the farewell to D. We would love to have you back on here. It feels like only appropriate that you should get your own epitaph to sign off on this interview. Oh, my God. Like that it's on my tombstone. Yeah. Oh, that's so much pressure. <laughs> um, She was fine. Like, <laughs> go with that. She was fine, exclamation mark. <laughs> I really like the idea of yours just saying, oh, this is too much pressure. But, all yes. But yeah, that's what it says. This is too much pressure. Brackets. She was fine. Exclamation. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I've always wanted mine to be. Uh, oh, I have to write this as well. Of course, of course, that's yours. <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> it's the same as as we've talked about as well. I have a uh, long-standing belief of what my Real Housewives catchphrase will be. And I'm here to make friends. <laughs> Perfect. So perfect. <laughs> Dee, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, James. Dee Fidge, what a delight. And as promised, we did ask some of our other guests what they would like on their tombstone. Here is what they said. What would you want on your tombstone? Ooh, 
Tombstone. <laughs> That's the most cheerful reaction that has got. Ooh, I get a tombstone. <laughs> I'll be free of your shit one day. Well, I just, I think I would curate because I think I've known, I know a few people that, uh, you know, I grew up knowing people that, that knew when their time was up so they you know they organized everything before they passed away you know what i mean they mm-hmm. i knew one one um one person i knew uh one old person i knew like actually organized his wake before he died oh that's a dream that's so so good. you get to hear how awesome you are it's so good <laughs> so anyway um i reckon i'd like to have something like you know oh my god um i i would love maybe something like um the word star in my in my language because um uh it had been quite a while since I returned to, um, you know, my, my grandmother's uh, traditional lands on the Tiwi Islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had she had a mother from the mainland up in the Northern Territory. So her mother was Larrakia, but her um, her father was Tiwi. And uh, the there's an old choir. There's a choir over there of old women and they sung a song about bit like a star um falling a shooting star star falling and returning to returning to the place it came from and so there's something really lovely about that and i would like something like that in in my language and i guess like because you know i think i think uh i would i would i mean i i'm just i'm just really I guess I'm just really proud of the work I've done, and um, mm-hmm. I mean, is that is that really arrogant to say? It's probably really arrogant <laughs> to be proud of yourself. I think that's okay. <laughs> I think we'll let that pass. But I just think, yeah, I think um, to have some language on there, and basically, mm-hmm. awesome mum down the bottom. In quotation marks. <laughs> Attributed to Grace. <laughs> Um, Dib's dying first, though. Oh, stop it. Like, the tombstone's there. What would you like it to say? Oh, something something mean um, probably to my siblings, a final own of my siblings, <laughs> ones where they can't talk back. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, something like I won if I'm the first one who died. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that, yeah. Uh, but no, I think about death all the time, and me and my, especially me and my sisters, have been obsessed with death for a very long time. And I think about it all the time. But I haven't actually, and I think about my funeral, but I haven't actually thought about the tombstone. I just mainly think about what everyone would say at my funeral. I always think about the funeral thing. I also have this horrible grim habit of if I meet someone, like whenever I'm, if I have a good friend, I'm like, hmm, what will I say at your obituary? <laughs> what does your eulogy sound like when it comes out? You think you're doing everyone's eulogy? 
<laughs> I actually think I'll go first, but I'm like, here's how I would write I, it. Because it's also like the writing task I wouldn't trust anyone else. Someone's going to have to do mine, and I'm glad I'm going to be dead for yeah, it. Yeah, well, I actually um, don't speak at funerals. Even You know, I'm usually obviously someone who does all the public-facing stuff and, you know, can get up on stage. But, uh, yeah, even my grandfather's funeral, I was very close to him in my early 20s. Nah, I didn't want to speak. My aunt died. I don't think that I would have been asked to speak then, but I just never want to get up there, so I won't be doing anyone's eulogy. Funerals is the one place <laughs> where can, I just want to sit down and be quiet. <laughs> That's right. I have a friend who I, I love that um, she wants her, her one insistence is to live long enough that her tombstone can have a hologram attached so everyone knows how <laughs> A hologram from the hottest time of your life. Oh, my God. I know exactly when I would want my hologram to be from. What would you like on your tombstone? Uh, I really thought about this. I feel like I thought about it when I was 20 or something. Like, I, th- I feel like I had a had something. But Are you a big death thinker? Like, we, we've kind of divided so far into people who are obsessed with death and people who are like, I will think about that when it happens. <laughs> uh, I'm a bit of a death thinker. I think, you know... Uh... <laughs> I, it's actually something I've clocked over the last few weeks. I feel like I'm actually becoming more afraid of it maybe over time. And and I think it's mostly because now I have like my life partner and I'm just always afraid that uh, he's going to die basically. (laughs) Um, I'm scared of his death or even like, I guess my own death and not getting to, live the next 20 years with him you know but you know ultimately if i die i just i just i don't even know right he dies i have to live with the grief of it for like the next anyway i don't think it's gonna happen hopefully not touching wood um but i do i think about it in my friends and other people a lot i think i it really uh, whenever like a celebrity has a reported like freak accident death, I'm like, man, that could just happen to anyone. Like mm. it, it, fr- I, it really freaks me out. And it is something actually, I think that keeps me up sometimes at night, like, uh, being like, wow, I love Pat. He's the best. He's perfect. Like, you know, I don't really believe soulmates exist, but if they did, we would definitely be soulmates. Man, it would suck to lose him. <laughs> oh man, like what if I did? Like, like literally just going down that like rabbit hole. It's so unhealthy. Uh, but <laughs> I do that with my. But I have like so, certainly this has changed a lot since since our daughter has arrived. Where I'm like, it's it just puts an extra level of stakes on it, uh-huh. which is like you're gonna you're gonna define someone's life if you don't take care every time you're driving. But yeah. <laughs> there's also I've always had the thought of like. I know exactly what Women's Weekly is going to look like next week. It's like Miranda Tapsell's heartbreak. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Oh, my God. Yeah, oh, my God. I used to always think about it after, like, a show went well. What was that? Whenever I was like... I used to always think about like after a show went well or anything, which is so low, but I'd always think like, does this upgrade your death notice? If like you know, oh you've done pretty well in it, I guess I guess you get two lines. Now. Oh my god. I can't say I've ever had that thought. 
<laughs> but it seems stressful. I'm going to just pretend you didn't say that so it's not something I dwell on uh, yeah, before okay. I fall asleep, I think. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, no, well, this is the thing as well. It's like my namesake, Montaigne, was like his whole thing was like he was ultra afraid of death and then he had a near-death experience and then he was like, oh, death's actually pretty chill. I'm looking forward to when I die, I'll just enjoy life until then, basically. And so I'm, I'm, you know, trying to, I'm aspiring to have more of that uh, sort of take on it. But um, that could be a good epitaph. Death's pretty chill. <laughs> Death's pretty chill. It would definitely be funny. It would be funny to be walking around. And because I think also like all of the headstones in my life I've seen, or most of them are like, people from the 1800s or whatever, and it's always mm-hmm. like uh, he's with the Lord now or whatever. Um, and so I feel like it would be pretty novel to, <laughs> to, to walk around and see, <laughs> see Epitaph that said that. But um, I don't know. I, uh, the, I have the one thing, Ari, death and my own death, that I have thought about is, like, what music I'd want played at my funeral. Ooh, um, good question. Yeah. What, what is it? So there's just one song that really hasn't shifted over time for me, and it's the song by a band called The Freelance Whales, which is this, like, indie band. Darren Chris's brother is one of the members, and that's how I found out about this band because I was obsessed with Glee when I was a teenager. <laughs> and music is really good. It's very, like, early 2000s indie. But um, there's a song called Generator Second Floor. Actually, it might be Generator First Floor, excuse me. They're, like, partner <laughs> songs, I think. Um, and the perspective of the song is, like, from memory, I could be fudging this, but from memory, like one of their grandparents died and they decided mm-hmm. to write a song from the perspective of the dead grandparent. And oh. and the chorus is like uh, people there on the funeral day or whatever and the chorus is from their perspective, like don't fix my smile, life is long enough and we'll put this flesh into the ground again, which... I think, like, we will put this flesh into the ground again Mm. is kind of, like, a great line uh, just to, you know, speak to how regular death is and how life is, cycles of life and death and, um, you know, uh, while it's very sad, it is just a reality that we all live with and there's also, you know, it's special because it doesn't last, basically. So... I don't know. That song's great. I highly recommend looking it up to anyone who listens. I have a friend who um, similarly has had his funeral song planned for a long time, but it's because he he edited together America's track Horse With No Name for about two and a half minutes. He used to play this about 2 a.m. at parties. There'll be two and a half minutes of Horse With No Name. Then out of somewhat out of nowhere, the most outrageous dubstep drop you've ever heard in your life. (laughs) This will be what you all have to play at my funeral and everyone else can deal with it. Fabulous. I actually don't know what horse with no name is. What is that? The uh, I've been through the desert on a horse with no name. It felt good to get out of the rain. It's like a 70s. Oh, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's coming to me. It's coming back to me. It's very WSFM area. Got you. (laughs) That's pretty funny. I have, like, you know, Ari Funeral been, like, maybe uh, 
<laughs> maybe you know what I write into my will is like has has to be fun or something like yeah, has yeah. to have one it's very weird but I have to say like I won't you know divulge all the details because I think they're mine to divulge but Pat's grandfather died uh, a couple of years ago and there was like an element he was like a really funny guy like loved pranks was like very affectionate grandfather vibes but also loved to just like trick his grandchildren and uh was a very funny man and there was like one stipulation that he had for his coffin that was just the funniest thing and everyone on the day was like crying so much but also just like couldn't help laughing every time like someone gestured towards like the coffin because it was just the funniest like little decorative touch anyway um i simply have seen a a clip going around tiktok recently which is uh um irishman who passed away who included a recording to be played as he was lowered which is this sound essentially hello hello I'm in a fucking box. <laughs> it's an amazing side of like people crying and laughing at the same that's time. Like, amazing. what a way to go out. I think that's a great way to go out. Yeah. What would you like on your tombstone? Send your entries in, and the winner will get a deluxe scarecrow. Now, remember, this competition is void if you send in an entry. I do not have access to a scarecrow yet. Hook me up, big scarecrow. Thank you all so much for listening to this show, particularly those of you who have done the long haul and have now finally made it to the end of the program. And you have, you finally made it to the end of the program. I have a lot of fun doing this show. Everything except editing it, I have a lot of fun doing. I hope you enjoy it nearly as much as I do. Not as much, of course, but nearly as much. (laughs) I would like to have an alright time. Uh, I hope... Martin, that things are looking better for you. I hope that you are getting in contact with me with all of your scarecrow needs or whatever other useless product you sell that I can sell out for. And if there's anyone you would like to see on the show, drop me a message and I will decide whether or not to pretend I've seen that message because if you have a bad suggestion, I don't want to give you shit for it. You're trying to help me out but I'm not going to do it. So if you have a good suggestion, message me. But if your suggestion sucks, keep it to yourself. And really think about, does my suggestion suck here? Maybe it does. Maybe it does. Uh, I have really enjoyed hearing back from people who listened through the first episode. Every one of you is a madman. And if I get to this stage, we are four hours and... 50 minutes in, which means I have to talk for another 10 minutes. You're not getting a full five hours here, I'm sorry, folks. We did have to take an interview out due to means beyond our control. I'm trying to make this sound very dramatic. We just couldn't get it done in time. But we are going to have another episode of this show when I feel like it. And it's already got a fantastic lineup. So I really hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to everyone who took part in this episode and everyone who listened through to it. Um, I... Do not give a rat shit if you rate or review this on iTunes or Spotify. I know I'm supposed to sell that a little bit harder. Give a fuck, honestly. But um, if you like the show and 
you want to share it with someone, that's always nice because it just means more people listen to it and I get one step closer to my own free scarecrow. I really hope this happens because I want, I know for a fact, even though she appeared on this episode, my wife is not listening to this full program. And so if we have a scarecrow arrive at the house, she'll be like, why do we have a scarecrow? We barely have a garden. And I will say, oh, it's a thing from the podcast. Didn't you listen? And then she will pretend she has listened. And she will say, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. And then we just have to deal with a scarecrow for the rest of our lives. So that's what I'm really hoping is happening here. That will make this show finally worth all the effort for me if we get just one scarecrow. They always say, if just one scarecrow gets delivered, it's all worth it. I really enjoyed doing this and bringing it to you. I hope you have a wonderful day. I'm just stalling for time because I do kind of want it to go for five hours, but I'd have to stall for nine whole minutes here. And, you know, what What have I got near me? Uh, <laughs> I looked around at the bookshelf and I the first thing that caught my eye was my own first book that I talked to with Brady Jabor about a little bit. And the idea of pulling that off the shelf and reading it for you was worse to me than ending this podcast in a shorter amount of time. So why don't we call it here? If you made it through your hero, if you did it in one listen, again, don't. Don't do that. You shouldn't. It's not healthy. But that said, when we have five episodes of this and it goes over 24 hours, I reckon someone should do a full day of listening to this. And most likely it will be your last day on Earth. So (laughs) you may as well. It will really make it feel like it's going slower for you, which is nice in a sense, I guess. Really stretch out the time. This has been a production of, uh, again, it's not, it's a production of me. Um, <laughs> I just like cooler podcasts I know end with stuff like that where they go all formal and be like, here's our list of credits. And I thought it would be nice to have a list of credits. We do have some people. Our artwork was done by Evie Hillier, whose work you should check out at Yves, Y-E-E-V-S underscore on Instagram, I believe. You know, I mean, check it. And our theme song is done by Aaron Domos and to a lesser extent, Fraser Harvey. If you somehow need more things to listen to, somehow. Since the last episode, uh, I have launched another podcast with my dear friend Bridie Connell called Vanity Project. And in that show, we take A-list celebrities, D-list albums, and we listen through them track by track. We have... About seven episodes out now at the time of recording. It's a really fun show. I highly recommend it. And if you chain all seven episodes together, it almost makes the length of one of these fucking episodes. So you can see why one show is weekly and the other comes out when I can physically manage it. So we'll see you for the next episode in about a year or two, I suppose. Thanks for tuning in. This isn't the kind of show that has a sign-off. The collie problem And you know he's got him The collie problem You know he's got him The collie problem You know he's got him What would you want on your tombstone? Ooh, tombstone! (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha